This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Believe it or not, it's Monday already, at least for those of us on the East Coast. Well, that's just fine. Uh, uh, the weekend has come to an end. Hopefully, you got to catch up on some rest or some leisure activities, or you did something fun. Uh, we have a lot going on on today's show. We're going to be joined by the, the New York Knicks, a pair of Knicks from New York. And this is one gentleman... I w- when I say they're Knicks, they weren't members of the basketball team. They're people that happen to be named Nicholas. Uh, one Nicholas is someone that I have admired and been a fan of for literally decades. And the other one is someone who I didn't even know existed more than 24 hours ago, but I've become a quick fan of his work as well. Now, I am just excited as can be because 20 minutes from now, Nicholas Meyer, Novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, you name it, who directed Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, the man who, as far as I'm concerned, revitalized the Star Trek franchise. He also directed Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. He had a big hand in writing Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. I mean, I think if you ask a lot of Star Trek fans what are the three best Star Trek films ever, those three probably come up on, I'd say... Eight out of ten Star Trek fans list. But um, I'll talk to him about that and a lot more stuff other than Star Trek uh, when we uh, when we talk to him. Nicholas Meyer coming up in about 20 minutes. And then next hour, Dr. Nicholas Cardaris is going to be here. He is an interesting guy. I read an excerpt in of his book in the Sunday um, New York Post, and it is just fascinating and it's all about how social media is literally making teens mentally ill so it is really absolutely wild now today is a better day in the history of the other side of midnight because we are very proud to welcome as our newest affiliate a terrific radio station wcbm in baltimore uh, 680 AM WCBM Talk Radio 680. Very, very excited. This is a legendary radio station. I've listened to a lot of personalities over the years on WCBM. The the one that I listen to the most is someone who unfortunately is no longer with us, and that's uh, Tom Marr. Uh, he was a brilliant uh, radio talk show host. Used to be on WOR as well for a time. But really, Tom Marr is a guy that ate, drank, breathed, and slept Baltimore. And I am uh, thrilled uh, to be on this uh, on this station. Big thank you to everybody. Now, 
the danger when you start on a new station like Talk Radio 680, it's always it's always the same, right? And we've gone through this a couple of times before. You don't want to do a great show because if you start out with a great show, then when you do shows that aren't as great in the future, they're always left saying, well, you know, Frank's show used to be pretty good. It started out so great, and then I don't know what happened. So you can't really do one of those things where you launch all of your missiles on your first show. I think it was Lawrence Olivier, Sir Lawrence Olivier, that used to say of actors, never let them see your top because once you they've seen your top, they'll know there's nothing else left. Now, you also don't want to be the worst show ever because if you show them the worst of you, then – Obviously, who's going to listen? So the challenge, when you start on a new station, like we are in Baltimore, and uh, it's an honor to talk to all the Baltimoreans, when you start on WCBM's Talk Radio 680, the challenge is how to do the most mediocre show possible. So that is what we're trying to do today. A show that is not great, but it's not terrible, but it is perfectly adequate. Now, if you're one of the uh, listeners in the Maryland area thinking, who is this fast-talking New Yorker, and uh, why is he on our air? I'm telling you, it takes a little time to get used to a show like this. I was looking at at the history of the ratings that we've been doing in the last two years. And just to give you an example, year to year, in New York, which is where we started, in March of 2020, we were doing a three-share, a three-share, which is, Perfectly adequate, perfectly adequate, not setting the world on fire, not embarrassing ourselves, perfectly adequate. We had a cum of about, you know, I don't want to say what it was, but whatever. It was a decent cum, not exactly setting the world on fire. A year later, March of 2020, no, so that was, yeah, that was March of 2021. Then March of 2022, a year later, we went from a, in a year, we went from doing a three share to a 20 share. A three share to a 20 share. We went from doing a zero rating to a a 0.2 rating, which for an overnight program is just great. So if you're not sure if you like the show yet, if you're just hearing it for the first time, my advice to you is just keep listening. And eventually you will. We do some offbeat stuff on here. We do some fun stuff on here. We do some hard-hitting stuff. We do some unconventional stuff. The lesson of this show is you really never know what to expect. And sometimes it's going to be fun. Sometimes it's going to be serious. Sometimes it'll be emotional. Sometimes it'll be silly. Sometimes it'll be outlandish. Sometimes it'll be focused on mysteries, conspiracies, crime. You just never know what to expect. That's why you have to keep listening. So welcome aboard. Now, it is interesting. You know what I've done in the last five minutes? In the last five minutes, I have thoroughly read everything there is on Wikipedia about... Baltimore, Maryland. And I now know that Baltimore, Maryland has a population of about 576,498. I can tell you about the mayor being Brandon Scott. I can tell you about uh, the fact that it was incorporated in 1797. Whatever you can easily look up in about five minutes, I am pretty much an expert in, in Baltimore now. In fact, it reminds me of this scene in Wayne's World 2. Have you ever seen Wayne's World 2? Not as good as the first one, but still pretty good. Still pretty good. We may have a sequel discussion with uh, Nicholas Meyer coming up in about 20 minutes. In Wayne's World 2, uh, Wayne Campbell, the main character, goes into, of all places, a radio station, 
and he meets a very lovely receptionist with a a European accent, right? I think it was played by Drew Barrymore, and this is what transpires. Wow, I love your accent. Where are you from? I'm from Sweden. Oh, really? Whereabouts in Sweden? Njergen, near the Bjergen Fjords. Well, nice to meet you, Bjergen Kajargen, from Kinjergen, near the Bjergen Fjords. Hmm, Kinjergen. That's in the Kalargen province, near the Bjergen River. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, your annual rainfall varies from about 40 inches in the winter to about 200 inches in the summer. And your chief export is modular furniture. I did a project on Sweden in the eighth grade. Well, I am impressed with your quest for knowledge. Educated men are rare. It was really hard. I stayed up all night working on it. Then the next day in gym class, I was on the mini tramp and I got diarrhea. I really wish I hadn't told you that. (laughs) Well, I am sorry to hear of your illness, but uh, since you have sacrificed your health for knowledge of my home country, I find you very attractive and I hope to make love to you in the near future. Well, Schmergen. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, I cannot tell you that I have uh, suffered any sort of intestinal issue uh, learning about Baltimore, but I can say that uh, I have given Baltimore a thorough reading, and uh, I actually visited Baltimore once, a very memorable trip there, about uh, in 1994. So what was that? That was about 28 years ago, and it was a very, very memorable trip. Went to visit Babe Ruth's house. A lot of people don't realize that uh, Babe Ruth actually started, even before he was with the Boston Red Sox, started with the Baltimore Orioles. They were not a Major League Baseball team at the time, but he started with the Orioles. And then um, right near Babe Ruth's house, went on a tour of Camden Yards, a beautiful ballpark, one of the most beautiful ballparks I have ever seen. And we couldn't see a game there because it was August and the baseball strike was underway. If you remember that baseball strike of 1994, it was such a nightmare. But I must say, I enjoyed the few hours that I spent there, and I am looking forward to getting back there soon. All right. You remember on Sesame Street when they had, uh, I don't know if they still do this, which one of these doesn't belong here? Um. Oh, by the way, so what we'll do is 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. If you're from New York or the New York area or Nevada, you can tell the Baltimoreans what they can expect from a show like this. If you're from Baltimore, I would love it if you would give me a little bit of Baltimore trivia so that I can act like I'm a real native, right? Act like I know the ins and outs of the mean streets of of Baltimore. I, I know where... Um, Marilyn Mosby gets her gets her hair done. You know, if you really have some inside Baltimore trivia, call me up at 800-848-9222. And uh, what we'll do is whoever our first caller is from Maryland will give you a complimentary other side of midnight cap just to sweeten the pot a little bit. 800-848-9222. But anyway, Sesame Street, I don't know if they still do this. I haven't watched Sesame Street since I was about, I don't know, five. And one of the things they used to do on there is they'd have like a box of similar things. And you'd have they'd ask the question, which one of these doesn't belong here? And or which one of these is not like the other? And you have to pick out which one doesn't belong here. Well, I saw four very interesting articles, four very interesting headlines 
And I want to ask Kenneth, our telephone talent coordinator, which one of these is not a real story? Okay, they all sound a little outlandish. But which one of these stories is fake? Which which have spot the fake news? All right, here are the headlines, Kenneth. Ready for this? I'm going to ask you. Number one, an 11-year-old EDM song is blowing up thanks to a, a Redditor's sexy time playlist. Okay, 11-year-old because of a Redditor's playlist. It's number one. Number two, Elon Musk's college girlfriend sold a birthday card he signed to her calling her boo-boo for $17,000. Number three. Scientists are learning about predators from 150 year, excuse me, 150 million year old vomit, which they've nicknamed Jurassic Barf. And finally, some Australians want Steve the Crocodile Hunter Irwin to replace Queen Elizabeth II on their currency instead of having her replaced by King Charles III. So we got 11-year-old EDM song blowing up thanks to Reddit, Elon Musk's college girlfriend selling a birthday card for $17,000, Jurassic Barf, and Steve the Crocodile Hunter Irwin on Australian currency. Kenneth, which is the fake story? I'm going to go with the barf. Jurassic Barf, unfortunately, you are absolutely... Incorrect. And to be honest, there was no way to win because they're all real. All of these stories are real. What planet are we living on where all these stories come out in the same 24-hour period? I thought, the, the when I saw these headlines, I'll tell you the one that I thought was going to be inaccurate was taking Queen Elizabeth off the money not putting um, not putting King Charles on the money and instead putting the crocodile hunter Steve Irwin on the money. But sure enough, this is all too real. Australians have been suggesting that there are a variety of different Aussie celebrities to replace the queen on the country's banknotes with zookeeper and national treasure Steve Irwin being a popular choice. Of course, you remember Steve Irwin. You get fight, fight. It's only a small dispute. There's no blood spilled. In amongst all this turmoil and commotion and thrashing and jaws and heads hitting together, it's wild, but it's organized. And, uh, of course, <laughs> I love Steve Irwin. I miss him. Very sad uh, that he passed away in the manner in which he did. The British monarch is Australia's head of state and is featured on the country's currency. And following the Queen's death on September 8th, the Australian National Bank announced the next day that uh, King Charles III will appear on their $5 notes in place of the late monarch, his mother. And uh, the same goes for coins, which will now be minted with King Charles' portrait. This change is not going to be implemented right away. The coins to be circulated in 2023 and then notes, the paper money, uh, will be after that, although we have no date on that. But uh, evidently, despite these plans, this has not stopped calls from Aussies for a different face to appear on their country's cash. And the late Steve Irwin seems to be the most requested name. (laughs) Irwin... The crocodile hunter 
uh, died in September of 2006. Can you believe it was that long ago? I feel like it was yesterday. Died in September of 2006 after he was struck in the chest by a stingray barb. I have to tell you, I know this may sound silly, right? Having Steve Irwin, a deceased crocodile hunter, on their currency. But it is, is it any more silly than having a monarch with no power on your money? I mean, basically, the monarchy is a hereditary, in, in, in the Commonwealth, is a hereditary reality show. That's all it is. So if we're going to recognize that the people on our money are just going to be celebrities, eh, what's wrong with Steve Irwin? 800-848-9222. But yes, uh, Kenneth Aird, uh, that was absolutely, the Jurassic Barf story was all too real. 800-848-9222. Nicholas Meyer joining us in about uh, 10 minutes. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Tony in Tampa, Florida. Hello, Tony. Hey, Frank, uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> well, I'm not a wealth of anything else. So uh, I, if only I could uh, pay my mortgage with knowledge, I'd be in a good position. You never know, bro. You never know. Anyway, if you were from Baltimore, you would pronounce it ball as in ball player, more, and you'd uh, delete the T and the L in between. And also you'd be saying you're going to wrench your dishes in the zinc. I like this. This is helpful. Yeah. Wait, wait. So if I want to pronounce um, the city that we're talking about like I am from there, the key is, is no L and no T. It's Baltimore? Exactly. Okay. And then and, and wrench your dishes in the zinc. Right. Mostly in Hampton. Ham- I don't know if it's Hampton or Hamden. Hampton. I have a law Hampton. office okay. on 36th Street in Hamden. I think it was Hamden or Hampton, but I, I forget. I could never f- remember if there was a P in uh, where the Hampton, but uh, it was uh, on 36th Street, and it was really a charming place to live. All right, Tony. And, uh, you had the cathedral and all that kind of thing. So thanks for sharing your thoughts with uh, everybody, uh, Frank, and uh, bid you good night. I appreciate that, Tony. Thank you very much. 800-848-9222. John is in freehold. Hello, John. You have a message for the Baltimoreans. Yeah, sure. What's up, Frank? Um, I was just going to say uh, I got hooked on your show the first time when I heard about aliens and UFOs. And uh, ever since then, it's just there's different topics. Literally every night is a different topic. And it ranges from politics to music to art to you know, UFOs, aliens, space, science. It's a, it's a great show. And uh, what I love about it is that we could call in and speak our mind. And uh, you, let, uh, you let us speak. And uh, it's a very comfortable place. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that message to the Baltimoreans. Yes, this is indeed, uh, first and foremost, a program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions. By the way, John and anybody else that's really into compelling UFO content, uh, tomorrow, very excited, about 25 hours from now, I am going to be joined by Whitley Stryber who is one of the foremost authorities when it comes to the issue of UAPs. Uh, he, he has written extensively fiction and nonfiction on this subject and has become something of a real expert and a, a real authority 
on this subject. So I'm looking forward to uh, doing that. He's also do- he also does a uh, a podcast on uh, on on the UFO issue. So I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. Now, 800-848-9222. Most of my knowledge of Baltimore aside from the one day that I spent there 28 years ago, most of my knowledge for, uh, about Baltimore is from the movies. And there are no better that I've seen Baltimore films than the ones made by Barry Levinson. In fact, they call these the Baltimore films, right? And they Barry Levinson, I got to uh, speak with him before he died, because if I got to speak with him after he died, that would be a very one-sided conversation. Am I right? So I got to speak with Barry Levinson before he died, and I told him how much I enjoyed the uh, Baltimore films that he made, Liberty Heights, Avalon, but by far my favorite was Diner. I absolutely love Diner because I'm quite fond of diners. Now, if you watch that picture, there's so many young future stars in that film. Steve Gutenberg is in that film. When Steve Gutenberg was on the show, we talked to him about it. You have uh, Mickey Rooney. You have uh, Kevin Bacon. A lot of interesting people. And uh, Paul Reiser. Paul Reiser is in that show. And it's one of my favorite scenes in Diner has to do, and I relate to this as a guy that spent a lot of time in diners and trying to keep people from eating my sandwich. I One of my favorite scenes has to do with exactly that. What is that, roast beef? Don't ask me this anymore, Mo. Yes. You going to finish that? Yeah, I'm going to finish it. I paid for it. I'm not going to give it to you. Don't. If you're not going to finish it, I would eat it. But if you're going to eat it, you're going to... What do you want? Say the words. No, go ahead. You're going to eat it. You eat it. That's all right. Say the words. I want the roast beef sandwich. Say the words and I'll give you a piece. Would you guys cut this out? I mean, every time. Anything. Well, if he doesn't talk, he just... He, well, you he, know what go- he means, right? Yeah, I know what he means, but he beats around the bush. He beats around the bush. If he'd say the words, I'd give him a piece. If I wanted it, but I, wouldn't I ask you? No, then I ask. You know you, you just want- let it go? You know he wants You're it. Annoying. I'm annoying. I'm annoying. I'm trying to eat a meal by myself. If you want to give him the sandwich, give him the sandwich. If you don't want to give him the sandwich, don't. You know, I don't want to give it. If well, then was... just eat the sandwich. Then don't. Shut up. Well, look at his eyes. I ask one simple question. You get it. You know what your problem is? You don't chew your food. That's why you get so irritable. It, it lumps you up like roast beef in your heart. It just stays there. Oh, Modell, you're really, really getting me mad now. You, my blood is boiling. See, I don't like it. I'll take the sandwich. No, don't. Fine, I'll take the sandwich. See, see what you do every... What are you blaming me? You took your sandwich. I'm sitting I'm having a cup you of want coffee. This? That's it. No, 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 no. I don't no, want it. I do. I can't believe you're eating the You know, you two play against me. That's what the problem is. You're both on each other's side. Uh, the Diner, one of my favorite Baltimore films of all time. Although maybe The Diner, the Baltimore that's depicted in that film is a Baltimore that no longer exists. I don't know. But uh, happy to be airing there nonetheless. 800-848-9222. I understand we have a first-timer. We're sorry. Let me welcome from the land of North Baltimore, Tom. Hello there, Tom. Welcome to the other side of midnight. You are our inaugural Baltimorean. Glad to be here, hon. You got to come here and visit Palmer. I will. Oh, I will. I mean, believe me. We'll take you down the ocean. We'll take you for a walk by the far house. We'll get you something. You know, people here they drink out. They drink out of those white cups of star foam. Thank you and very then, much, Tom. I appreciate that. I'm pretty sure that was also Tony in Tampa. Luckily, 
Luckily, uh, we're going to talk with Nicholas Meyer in just a moment. Nicholas Meyer is a legend. In terms of his abilities as a writer, a filmmaker, a personality, a producer, a director, as a guy that knows a thing or two about a thing or two, and as a man who is a masterful storyteller, there's nobody like Nicholas Meyer. And as a Star Trek fan, I'm really grateful to him, not only for having a hand in three of the greatest Star Trek films ever made, but for really rescuing and revitalizing the whole Star Trek film franchise. If, you know, we look at parallel worlds, and if we can look at a world where Nicholas Meyer never existed, I think you might have seen the Star Trek films end with Star Trek The Motion Picture. Would not have been a pretty picture. Fortunately for us, Nicholas Meyer lives in our universe, and we're going to talk to him straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This stirring score from what many people believe is the greatest Star Trek film ever made. Other people believe it is the greatest sequel ever made, possibly on par with The Godfather Part Two or The Empire Strikes Back. Others believe that it was the greatest film Ricardo Montalban ever made. What is not subjective is that it was the film debut of Kirstie Alley, who brilliantly portrayed Savick, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. The man that uh, directed, and even though he's not credited, wrote that film, is also the man who had a large hand in writing another one of Star Trek's most popular films, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And my probably personal favorite out of any Star Trek film, and one of my favorite films ever, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. He is a gifted novelist screenwriter, director, and producer uh, who has done a lot more than just Star Trek. But for those of us that are Trekkies or Trekkers, uh, that's why he always maintains a special place in our heart. It is my great pleasure to welcome Nicholas Meyer. Uh, Mr. Meyer, it is a great thrill to talk with you. I've been a fan for literally decades. (laughs) The decade part makes me a little nervous, but thank you. Well, you know, with the amount of messing around with time travel that you've done in your career, you know that uh, a decade's never really a decade, right? What's a decade or two in the grand scheme of things? And a kiss is just a kiss. <laughs> exactly. So um, you had uh, quite an impressive career, uh, and do still have, as a as a novelist, and uh, and then made that transi- transition from novelist to screenwriter. For people that spend a lot of time and are up late listening to us because they're spending a lot of time uh, slaving over a computer or a word processor, how did you find that transition of writing for the printed page in the form of novels to transitioning to the world of screenwriting? 
Well, you've got it backwards. I was a screenwriter who became a novelist only when the Writers Guild went on strike and we weren't allowed to write screenplays. I was writing television movies, The Night That Panicked America and Judge D and The Haunted Monastery. Um, and my career was just starting to get off the ground. When the Writers Guild went on strike and you weren't allowed to write screenplays, you had to go uh, carry a picket sign outside studios and um, come home and then stare at the wall because there was nothing else to do. And the woman with whom I was living at the time said, now you can write that Sherlock Holmes book you keep talking about, hmm. which was my idea of Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. Uh, well, that, uh, no, I'm that sorry. Book became a 7% solution, and that's how I became a novelist but i was a screenwriter first oh i i see i didn't know that i appreciate the uh, i appreciate the correction and i've oh, always okay. i i've always really enjoyed and i read the seven percent solution and i thought the premise was uh very interesting it's not just a, a rank and file chance meeting of sherlock holmes and sigmund freud sherlock holmes is dealing with some uh, a lot of problems that you don't necessarily associate with a famous literary character well if you if you read Conan Doyle as and the Sherlock Holmes stories as written. I'm not talking about the movies. I'm I'm a I'm a Doyle purist. I'm a Sherlock Holmes purist. You will learn in the second Sherlock Holmes stories, uh, the sign of the four, that Holmes is a cocaine addict, and it is the premise of the seven percent solution that Watson gets him to Vienna for a cocaine withdrawal cure from Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, by the way, was also had been a cocaine user for a time. He used it to treat depression. And he got off it um, after a friend of his died from it. Um, and so it seemed like an inevitable matchup. I didn't learn until way after the novel was written and the movie was made that uh, Freud actually enjoyed really reading Sherlock Holmes stories they were his bedside reading, which really? I think was. Yep. Wow. Yep. And uh, I should mention you were actually nominated for an Academy Award for best screenplay for the Seven Percent Solution. True. Yeah. Uh, so your directorial debut deals with another very odd pairing, uh, although these are real life figures as opposed to one fictional and one real life. And that's uh, the work that you did on Time After Time, which I think still holds up as well more than four decades after it came out as it did when it was released. And if people haven't seen the film, it deals with a a meeting of H.G. Wells and Jack the Ripper and some time traveling that they do to another century. This was the first film that you ever directed. I, I had read, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this one, that um, you had written the screenplay for this and you weren't going to agree to sell the screenplay unless you got the opportunity to direct. Is that true? And why was directing this picture so important? Well, directing was my goal. Someone said that, you know, going to Hollywood, wanting to be a screenwriter was like wanting to be co-pilot. You really want to be in the director's uh, chair. And I had used this sort of leapfrog method before. I refused to let the 7% solution, my novel, be sold to the movies 
unless I got to write the screenplay. And so I just did the same thing. Here I wrote the screenplay, and I wouldn't let that be sold unless I got to direct the movie. Um, and Orson Welles said that directing a movie is the biggest set of electric trains that any kid ever <laughs> play with. Um, so, yeah, that's how that came about. Is there a difference when you approach writing for a character that really existed, like H.G. Wells or Sigmund Freud, versus writing for somebody that has always been fictional, like Sherlock Holmes? The short answer to that is, in my book, you should pardon the expression, no. Um, If you are writing a novel or writing a movie, and by movie, we're talking about a feature film, this implies in both cases that you're dealing with fiction or a fictionalized treatment. To give you the long-winded answer, if, if, if you're writing a history or you're writing a biography, the people who read the history or the biography are entitled to believe that your book is as true as historical research can make it. But once you call it a movie and once you call it a novel, everybody understands that all bets are off. The problem, if I may add, is that in a post-literate age, uh, people tend to get their information from movies Mm. and television and think that those things are real. For example, if you watch The Deer Hunter, which is a wonderful movie, you may come away believing that the Viet Cong made American POWs play Russian roulette. But as good as the movie is, There's no evidence that the Viet Cong ever made any American POWs play Russian roulette. That's Michael Cimino's invention. That's a movie. That's fiction. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I think there are a whole bunch of people over the last 10 years that have a misunderstanding of how Hitler died after seeing the Quentin Tarantino film Inglorious Bastards. So it's important to reiterate that uh, the history that you see— Probably died after seeing the movie. Hey, um, I am a huge fan of uh, Time After Time, not only because of uh, the story and because it's so clever, but the magnificent performances of the actors in that uh, in that picture. Malcolm McDowell, uh, David Warner, Mary Steenburgen and the the back and forth, the chemistry between the characters of Wells and Jack the Ripper is just absolutely electric. We don't belong here. On the contrary, Herbert. I belong here completely and utterly. I'm home. It's you who do not belong here. You, with your absurd notions of a perfect and harmonious society. It's drivel. The world has caught up with me and surpassed me. Ninety years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. It's still so stirring uh, listening to uh, David Warner, who unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, obviously, we don't, we're don't. we not 100% sure who Jack the Ripper was, but is there any actual historical evidence that H.G. Wells and any of the candidates for the real Jack the Ripper may have known one another? The short answer to that is no. I, I the, my long-winded and all my answers are long-winded um, is that I wasn't really interested in either the real H.G. Wells or the real Jack the Ripper. They were sort of stand-ins in my 
imagination for two aspects of human behavior, the constructive and the destructive. Wells, you know, yes, there are sort of certain outlines of him that are, I tried to make accurate, but I wasn't really obsessed with it. He was, to me, a forward-looking, progressive, small-p uh, kind of guy who believed in the betterment of humanity or or at least purported to. And the Ripper was a stand-in for every malign, malignant, psychotic aspect of human behavior, which is now unfortunately on the rise. Uh, talking with Nicholas Meyer, novelist, screenwriter, got a new book out, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's called uh, The Return of the Pharaoh. But uh, those of us that are Star Trek fans, uh, Mr. Meyer, we credit you with uh, saving and revitalizing the franchise of uh, Star Trek films with your incredible direction uh, with of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, a film that many people still regard as the best Star Trek film ever and uh, which is responsible for so many iconic Star Trek scenes like this one. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. Were you a fan of Star Trek, the TV series, prior to your professional involvement with the franchise? I had never seen it. Um, when I was a kid and the, it was on television and I'd be channel surfing, um, I, I missed everything that was important about it. I missed the idea of human beings of different genders and races getting together to solve problems in a cooperative fashion. All I saw was the cheesy costumes, the guy with the pointy ears and, and the funny looking sets. And I, you know, t- typical me, it just, it all went right by me. So I, I knew nothing about it. Um, then I was introduced to Harve Bennett, who was the producer of the movie. And um, we got along very well. And he started to show me uh, the different episodes. And then he showed me the first movie and I, you know, I still sort of didn't get it, except that it it reminded me of something that I couldn't put my finger on for a while. What was it that I really liked about all this? And then I remembered those books I remembered read when I was about twelve about Captain Horatio Hornblower, the captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic mm. Wars, who had all these adventures and he had a girl in every port, and that sounded cool to a twelve-year-old. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this is Hornblower in outer space. I I could figure out how to do that. This is just about the Navy. This is submarines and, and destroyers. And so, you know, that was how I approached it. I still didn't understand it until 30 years later when I started <laughs> looking at it. Oh, wait a minute. This is an interracial cast. This is an, you know, there are, there are women in positions of command and, you know, all that stuff just had gone right by me. A lot of us that are fans of Star Trek 
we watched the first Star Trek film, Star Trek the Motion Picture, and for the most part, it's tough to get through. It's and again, I'm being charitable. There's a lot of great parts to it, but it's it's pretty boring. It's pretty dry. Did you did you see that film prior to your helmsmanship of Star Trek Two? And did you realize that artistically, stylistically, story wise, that everything needed to change after that? The short answer to that is yes, but I'd like to say in the same breath that. I'm not in a position to knock that movie. Somebody had to go boldly sure. where it gone before. And the movie was enormously helpful to me in in just in reacting to things that, you know, that I didn't want to do. Um, and, and, and Robert Wise, you know, has forgotten more about making a movie than I'll learn in three lifetimes. So it's not an, an I, you know, I can't be knocking it. But what I did think was, gee, this is awful dry. There isn't a joke anywhere in it. And I always go look. That's what Tom Stoppard says. He says, the first thing I go looking for is the jokes. Um, And the other thing was that when I see movies of the space station, people are floating and it doesn't look like a holiday inn to me. So when I see the Star Trek TV show and the movie, they're all walking down carpeted places, and I think, no, that's not the kind of submarine destroyer Navy world that that I want to see or that I think is, you know, maybe it's a defect in my imagination. Maybe, maybe by the 20th century they'll all be walking down carpets out there. I don't know, but I reacted against all that and wanted – the sets to be small. I wanted them to be dirtier. If I'd had my way, it would look more like the spaceship Nostromo in Alien. But I couldn't do that because I was working with hand-me-down sets. So all I could do was add a lot of blinking lights and make them smaller and, and sort of dirty them up. That's why your desire to see different things in a space opera than were depicted in Star Trek, the TV series, or that first Star Trek film. I think that's one of the reasons that zero gravity scene in Star Trek VI is just so cool. Because for a show in a universe that was set in space, we'd never really seen anything in the way of zero gravity. And the way that you did that was just so uh, so clever. So uh, I, I can definitely see your your tastes manifesting itself into the product that uh, that came out on screen true or false the two early versions of the title of star trek 2 were the revenge of khan and the undiscovered country uh true um i called the 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 star trek 2 i called it the undiscovered country the undiscovered country is a line from hamlet it is about the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. That's death. And this was a movie about the death of Spock. So I thought that was a pretty elegant title. And then I got a phone call or my assistant came to see me while we're frantically trying to get this movie ready for an, <laughs> they booked it into theaters and there wasn't even a movie yet. And she says, gee, I think they've changed the title of the movie. I said, no, that's impossible. She goes, no, I think there's a guy in, in New York, who's an executive, and and uh, I said, get him on the phone. <laughs> and so I, I get him on the phone. I said, Mr. Mancuso, this is Mr. Meyer. I'm the writer director of Star Trek II. Is it is it true that you've changed the name of the movie? And he goes, uh, Yes, it is. And I said, 
have you read the script? She said, no, I have not. I said, have you um, seen any of the dailies? He said, no, I have not. I said, well, don't you think it would have been a little tactful, a little diplomatic to touch base with me as the creator of the film before changing the title? And he said, uh, oh, and he, I was told that the movie was going to be called The Revenge of Khan, The Revenge of Khan. And I said, I love, can I ask you another question? I said, aren't you aware that Paramount Pictures does a lot of business with George Lucas uh, over the Indiana Fr- Jones franchise? He goes, yes, I am aware of that. I said, do you know that Mr. Lucas is making a movie called The Revenge of the Jedi? <laughs> you think he's going to be very happy with the vengeance of Khan? And he goes, I assure you that won't be a problem. And the next thing you know, I got Barry Diller yelling at me, who the hell knows what Roth is? Who knows what Roth is? What a stupid title. I said, you're talking to the wrong guy. It wasn't me. So when it came time to do Star Trek VI, and I had a little more clout after three of these things, I said, God damn it. This is going to be the rest, the, the undiscovered country. No one's going to stop me. I'm glad you got to use that title, and uh, that, that we're, we're the beneficiaries of that. Now, uh, Kirstie Alley, as I mentioned, that was her film debut. Um, both she and Shatner have talked about in subsequent years how, while they're very friendly now, they didn't get along too well in the course of that film. Some of the other cast members have raised issues with, uh, you know, with various Shatnerian aspects of his behavior. Um, obviously, you work with, with Shatner on several films. Um, c- can you understand why some of the actors might have been rubbed the wrong way by some of his his behavior on set? Or do you think that was all kind of just uh, making a mountain out of a molehill? It's a very complicated question. What you have is seven actors who were working actors with greater or lesser degrees of success, who back in the 1960s were picked by the fickle finger of fate to work together as supposedly this perfectly meshed crew of the Starship Enterprise. And although none of them planned it, they were going to be joined at the hip, whether they wanted to or not, for the rest of their lives. And there may have been years where nothing was happening and they were opening supermarkets or whatever, but they couldn't get away from it. And I would be very surprised if even a close-knit family didn't have issues Mm. over years and years and years. The other thing I would say is I'm busy directing the movie. Sure, That's a 24-7 uh, occupation. You you really don't get to sleep, and you don't notice a lot of things that are going on outside the frame. You don't have time for that. At some point, somebody said to me while we were doing Time After Time, said, I think Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen are falling in love. And I said, no, 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 I'm just like a really good director. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. So if you can imagine people falling in love and the director not knowing it, and you could easily imagine people falling into something else, quite the opposite, and the director still doesn't know it because when they're when you call action, this is what they're doing. Sure. They're acting. 
They're part of the crew. I, I could talk with you all day about this stuff, but I, I have to ask you, I understand you're in the midst of launching a new dramatic podcast that's sort of a, a prequel to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, that for, focuses on Khan's life on SETI Alpha 5. What can you tell us about it? Well, about eight years ago, uh, Alex Kurtzman, who is very heavily involved in the Star Trek business, I didn't even... You know, I I didn't even know what the word franchise meant when I directed Star Trek Two. But you know, it's it's big business. It's it's all Star Trek twenty four seven all the time. And he said to me, "This is six or seven years ago. What happened to Khan on CD Alpha Five? Kirk deposited him on a Paradise planet, and something obviously went wrong, and some of it was." You know, a, a nearby planet exploded and wrecked the orbit of CD Alpha 5. But how did Khan deal with what happened to him? And I thought this was a brilliant idea. And I said, please let me write this. And I wrote three one hour scripts for, you know, television movies or streaming, as we now call it. And for whatever reason, and trust me, they were stupid reasons, it wasn't made. Um, and years went by, and Alex and I always had a sort of a hair up our tush about this thing. And then one day he said to me, guess what? Paramount's doing podcasts, which, you know, is sort of a fancy name at this point for radio plays. Sure. Uh, I used to direct radio plays in college, so I said, yum, yum. Um, and he said, let's take these three scripts and make them into, you know, a radio series. And I said, great. And that's what it's about. Well, do we have a timetable for that? I can't wait to hear that. Well, the funny part of the timetable is I've been waiting for the past five months for the contract <laughs> to close between me and Paramount Pictures. And the thing is, the reason it takes so long is that everybody in business affairs is so terrified now of making a mistake and giving away the store in all these new venues that they keep saying, well, what else can we insist is covered in this contract? Not only this galaxy, but any galaxy yet to be discovered from time. If there were time travel, it has to be retroactive. If we go forward, you get the picture. I do indeed. Uh, Mr. Meyer, I could talk with you all day, and I have a lot of questions about Star Trek VI, about Return of the Pharaoh, about uh, the day after. I, I, if you're willing, uh, I hope we could do this again in a, in a week or two and continue the conversation because this has been a real treat for me. I'd be delighted. Thank you. Nicholas Meyer. Uh, you can check out the new book, the new novel, The Return of the Pharaoh. You can get it uh, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can also go to Nicholas-Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R.com. It's available on uh, on there. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Cindy Lauper, time after time, which remains, as I said, a great picture today. Hey, by the way, I realized I misspoke before. I said that it was Mickey Rooney who was in the movie Diner. It was, of course, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. In the movie diner, uh, which we'll talk more about Mickey Rourke later. Hey, uh, those of you that are holding, we'll get to you in a moment. 800-848-9222. Next hour is social media causing mental illness. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Housekeeping items. One, uh, we have, I don't want to call it breaking news, but it is an important alert to bring uh, to your attention. Uh, And and that is that, uh, you know, I was talking about the Baltimore films made by Barry Levinson. Uh, Barry Levinson, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Rain Man, Bugsy, Wag the Dog, Diner, as I mentioned. And I talked about how great it was to be able to talk with Barry Levinson before he died. Well, we have some news, which is... Well, the, the new, thank you. Uh, the news is that uh, Barry Levinson is still alive. Barry Levinson is not dead. That is the power of this radio program. We are able to bring people back to life. Of course, uh, I we did not bring him back to life. He never died. My apologies. I don't know why I thought Barry Levinson died, but sure enough, he is still alive. I don't know. We got to get him back on the show. Not back, but we got to get him on the show. A great director. And uh, in the one conversation or two conversations that we had, he seemed like a really great guy. Uh, My thanks to uh, Johnny Ants on Twitter, who pointed out that uh, I am uh, an idiot and that Barry Levinson is not dead. So that's not that's embarrassing. I've killed off a few people before. I once said that um, that uh, I think I said that that Whitney I confused Whitney Houston and Tina Turner. And I said that uh, that Tina Turner had died, and that's why she wasn't in the remake of uh, of uh, whatever that picture is, Blade Runner, not Blade Runner. Uh, what's that film? Um, Mad Max, right? I said that's why she wasn't in Mad Max. But uh, sure enough, Tina Turner was still alive, and that was I was equally embarrassed to kill off Tina Turner, and uh, she's still alive. Barry Levinson's still alive. Everybody's still alive. Except for the people that, of course, no longer with us, like Ricardo Montalban. 800-848-9222. The other thing I have to comment on real quick, and there's a few. We're going to talk about uh, social media and mental illness in just a minute. But uh, one thing that I have to comment on very quickly is, you know, I'm really into this AI art these days. And um, basically, if you haven't been listening to me talk about it, you can go to a number of apps and a number of websites 
and you can create art through a computer. Basically, you give the text prompt and this computer, you tell what kind of style you want and it creates a piece of art. Okay. One of my recent pieces of art is the text prompt was Roger Stone eating pizza in Siberia. And it was done in the style of Monet with a lot of other kind of tweaks to it. And basically it's just, it looks like a Monet, a Monet-esque painting of Roger Stone eating pizza. That's basically what it looks like. If you want to see it, I just posted it on the Facebook at facebook.com slash Moranofan. And whenever I think of Roger, I know most people, when they think of Roger, they think of Donald Trump or, um, you know, a a Republican dirty trickster or his trial or the FBI raid. Now, Roger's a friend of mine for over 20 years. We go back a long way. And um, I view I know him a lot different than the rest of the world does. And one of the things that Roger is very passionate about is pizza. In fact, Roger did a long-form interview with me right after he his trial concluded, and I think it was after he was pardoned. And one of the issues that we spoke about, we spoke about politics, we talk, spoke about the criminal justice system, but one of the issues we spoke about was pizza. Here's a small portion of that conversation. Uh, I'm also trying to avoid overeating because you're sending out for most of your meals or you're cooking at home. Uh, thank God there is really, really high-quality pizza uh, at Anthony's Coal Fire Pizza, which is very close to my home. Now, Frank, I know you prefer the Chicago deep <laughs> well, style of pizza. <laughs> well, I've ordered some uh, that I'm – I've actually never tried true Chicago deep dish style pizza. But given the reviews uh, that uh, Dave Portnoy gave to Lou Melnati's, I'm going to be having some uh, tomorrow. I've ordered some from uh, Frozen from Lou Melnati's. But I, I do want to point out that – That has actually been one of my great disappointments. If there's anyone in the world who should be invited onto Barstool Sports – to talk about pizza, I would say that that would be me because I am, as you know, I am one of the world's foremost experts on great pizza. Well, that's true. And I, I brought you up in a number of pizza discussions I've had with uh, experts over the years, and they dispute your claim that pizza should not be refrigerated. But we'll leave that for, for another day. Um, uh, wrongly, in- wrongly decided. So you get the point. Stone is very into pizza. If you, I mentioned in Stone's book, Stone's Rules, not for anything I've done on the radio or anything I've done in politics. We, it, I mentioned in the context of pizza, right? So he's very passionate about pizza. So that's what inspired this piece of art. And again, you could see it at facebook.com slash Moranofan. So I text this to Stone the other day, maybe Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday. And Roger texts me back. I didn't send any contacts or anything like that. And Roger texts me back and says, I don't know what this is, but I like it. So he shares it on the, the social media platforms that haven't banned him yet, Rumble and so forth. And I tell him, yeah, this is some AI-created art that I had a hand in creating. Well, lo and behold, a story broke over the weekend in the Daily Beast. Headline, Roger Stone's fans turn on him over posting portrait of him and pizza. This is for real, Okay. Veteran, this is from the Daily Beast, which obviously has a progressive bent, but they're pretty much just reporting on what's going on on social media. Roger said he wanted to come on this week and talk about it, so maybe we will. But veteran Republican operative Roger Stone had his fans turn against him 
after posting a portrait of himself, this is my portrait, with a pizza while wearing a matching pepperoni necktie. The longtime Trump world hanger-on seemingly ran afoul of his Pizzagate-believing followers on Friday night who urged Stone to take down the artwork. You know, you know what's missing from this article and from Roger's post is a little credit for the Frankster here. I mean, I would have loved to have been mentioned as the, uh, the impetus for this AI art. Um, Pizzagate is, of course, this, I'm reading from the Daily Beast. Pizzagate is a far-right conspiracy theory that involves the baseless belief that in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizzeria lies a Democratic child sex dungeon. One significant fact stands in Pizzagate's believer's way. The D.C. pizzeria in question does not have a basement. Really? Pizza Roger? Not a very good look with all that's going on with all the perverts, one Stone supporter wrote on Truth Social. Another wrote, not a good look, man. Delete or they use it against you. Delete? It's him in front of a pizza pie. On Friday night, amid backlash from his supporters, the self-described dirty trickster responded, quote, sometimes pizza is just pizza. Nothing more, nothing less. Stone didn't return the Daily Beast request for comment on Saturday. On Saturday evening, Stone again took to Truth Social to double down on his love of pizza. Quote, great pizza is often found in the most unlikely places. And I, I guess that's an homage to the fact that the text prompt for my artwork was, Roger Stone eats pizza in Siberia. So, again, I wish Roger would have given me a shout-out there as the uh, creator of that. But I think it's hysterical that people actually got upset with him for posting a portrait of him with pizza. We're going to talk about social media and um, and mental illness in just a bit. Meantime, though, go ahead. I was going to say, could you imagine if he actually posted the title, Roger Stone eating pizza in Siberia? Then they would have said, Siberia, Roger? Really? With all that's going on with Russia. Siberia? Oh, take it down. Exactly. To Roger's credit, he did not take it down. Roger's like me, though. Like, the more that you you ask him to take down something or or do something, he kind of goes the exact opposite, right? So if there's anything that's going to get Roger to dig in his heels on something, it's criticism. So uh, I don't think it's being taken down. Still waiting for that credit, but we'll see. We'll give Roger a hard time if he comes on the show this week. 800-848-9222. Meantime, a lot of other stories in the news, which we'll get to, but... A fella that um, I have been trying to track down is the man, and I'm not joking about this, is the man that is singularly responsible for me being able to pay my American Express bill today because I have incurred a large number of expenses over the last month, had to book a trip to Mexico for my brother-in-law's wedding. And book accommodations there, uh, had a recent trip to Atlantic City, recent trip to Cape May. All this went on my American Express card, which, uh, needless to say, it, was, it had built up a pretty hefty balance. So I am paying this off today because of one man. And that gentleman called me about a month ago, July 10th or thereabouts, I guess more than a month ago, and said what you should do is buy out your car lease and then sell it because the price of used cars these days, you're going to make some money. Now, had he not told me that, I would have just returned the car, gotten no money, 
And I would have um, I would have been happy that I was saving the money that I'm spending each month on car on my car payment and insurance. So um, lo and behold, we've been trying to track this fella down, and we believe that we have done so. Bob in Long Beach, is that really you? Yeah, Frank. How you doing? How did it work out for you? It worked out great. I recognize the voice, Bob. I wanna, I wanna um, do something for you to thank you. Can I, uh, can I send you to oh. dinner somewhere, or lunch somewhere, or somewhere? Sounds yeah, whatever you know, Frank. Uh, was, I just thought I'd tell you because you know I, I did the same thing when I bought Mike. I couldn't get another car because there were no cars for lease. So that's what I did. Yeah, you know, whatever. You get back to Long Beach. That's where I live. Yeah, uh, you know, not. It's been a while since I was out there. No, no plans to get that back back there soon. But are you on Venmo? Let me Venmo you uh, some money to buy dinner or something. No, that's okay. Hey, if you, if you ever want, you can. Uh, it's hey, Villa Familia, I go to. Hey, where? Which place? It's called Villa Villa Familia. Well, I would be delighted to, to buy you dinner or lunch there. But Bob, also in the meantime, uh, we'll we'll work on dinner arrangements. Uh, I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information, and we'll send you um, some some swag from the show a, uh, a a hat or a shirt or something. Thanks, thanks, Frank. I'm, I'm, Frank, let me just ask you a question once I got you. Sure. You know, there's this. I don't usually talk about people's other shows because I don't care. I'm listening to you. But he calls up a few other shows. His name is Stan, right? Could you just find out for me if he ever served in the armed forces of the end of what country? Well, I mean, so I don't think he doesn't really call this show. So I don't know when I would get the opportunity to ask him. But, but oh, I Dominic, mean, Dominic, he called Dominic. Right. But, but Peter, Bob, but how would, I mean, he could tell me that he did or he didn't. I have no way of confirming that. I'm not going to go okay. and check with the Pentagon and see if he's telling the truth. <laughs> you know, I, I and I can't even get the truth about uh, UFOs from the Pentagon. Bob, I'm going to put you on hold. I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth all your information, including your number. I want to stay in touch, and I want to I want to do something nice to uh, to thank you. Get get all Bob's contact information, and give him all my contact information. Give Bob a special Frank phone so that he can reach me anytime, day or night. Love Bob. Bob is the is the man responsible for my financial solvency um, and being able to pay my credit card bill today. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of uh, aliens and stuff, uh, another uh, listener, Jay, sent me this interesting article from a couple from yesterday. This is from the website CNET.com. Headline: NASA's Mars Perseverance rover finds intriguing organic matter in rock. Just wait till we get the rocks into a lab on Earth. In This is from this article in CNET. In just a year and a half, by the way, if you want to comment on the Roger Stone pizza gate situation or anything else we're commenting on, the discussion with Nicholas Meyer, you name it, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. In just a year and a half on Mars... NASA's Perseverance rover has absolutely rocked, pun very much intended, its mission. The agency held a briefing on Thursday to discuss highlights from the science mission so far, and it was a celebration of rock samples and the discovery of, you ready for this, organic matter. A rock named Wildcat Ridge. How's that for a name? Wouldn't you like that? 
Doesn't that sound like a Western gunfight at Wildcat Ridge? Shootout at Wildcat Ridge. The West of Wildcat Ridge. I love that. A rock named Wildcat Ridge, located in an ancient River Delta region, was one of the stars of the show. Percy successfully collected two samples from the mudstone rock. Wildcat Ridge is particularly exciting because the organic molecules called aromatics found in it are considered a potential biosignature, which NASA describes as a substance or structure that could be evidenced of past life but may also have been produced without the presence of life. The rover team emphasized that finding organic matter doesn't mean it's found evidence of ancient life. Organic molecules have been spotted on Mars before by the Curiosity rover, also by Perseverance. Now, it is interesting. Scientists are seeing familiar signs in the analysis of Wildcat Ridge. In the distant past, the sand, mud, and salts that now make up the Wildcat Ridge sample were deposited under conditions where life could potentially have thrived. That's according to Perseverance Project scientist Ken Farley. The fact that the organic matter was found in such a sedimentary rock, known for preserving fossils of ancient life here on Earth, is important. Now, I thought that was interesting in and of itself, but the listener that sent me this article, Jay, he said the following. This is... NASA's way of slow-walking humanity to the notion that life may not have started on Earth, but maybe Mars. This is what he said to me. I believe this will be the ultimate proclamation, and scientists are giving the theologians and religious leaders time to adjust the dogma accordingly. I thought that was so interesting in terms of a theory. I wonder about that. Is that what NASA and these scientists are doing? That essentially this is going to be proof that, you know, as the old narration from the old Battlestar Galactica show goes, that life here began out there. I wonder about that. Is this the way that they're going to kind of condition the public to say, all right, start thinking about the fact that life once existed on Mars. Now, they're not saying that Mars is crawling with Martians. They're saying that there might have been life there, which I thought was very interesting. Hey, did you ever wear braces? I I wore braces for – I was older, too. I think I was in high school. I didn't get them when I was a younger person. Most people get them as a younger person, but then um, – I don't know. There was – I don't remember why I didn't get them till till later. I think it might have been one of those situations where my um, – you know, my mother and father, who were divorced, were um, were kind of arguing about uh, who should pay for it or something. It was one of those things. But I didn't I didn't get them until high school, which is the worst because in when you're in high school, you're in the process of transitioning to adulthood, and you want to look your best. And the braces, it just looks very juvenile. It's something that you get in the third grade, maybe the fourth grade. It's not something you get. When you're a freshman or a, or a sophomore in high school. But sure enough, I had braces when I was a freshman or a sophomore. And I refused to smile in photographs for a year and a half. I found them embarrassing. I found them uncomfortable. 
Every time I would get them tightened, my teeth were in a lot of pain. And, um, you know, I really didn't, you're supposed to, I guess, after you get your braces off, you're supposed to wear that retainer all the time. I didn't wear it. I, for a while, I, wear, I wore it at night. And then ultimately, I just stopped wearing it altogether. What I would do is wear it at night and then stop wearing it, stop wearing it. And then whenever I felt my teeth getting a little out of whack, I would put the retainer back in at night. And I did this for a while. I mean, I, maybe even until college, I would throw that retainer in. And then ultimately, I just figured, what am I doing? I threw it away. But um, and ultimately, I think these days, maybe because I didn't use the retainer properly, I've thrown it. Uh, you know, my teeth are, I don't want to say they're crooked, but I don't find that they're particularly straight. I, I don't look at my teeth and say, oh, my goodness. You know, those are movie star teeth. I think my teeth look almost the same as they would have looked had I not had the braces. Now, again, an orthodontist will say that's because you didn't do the right thing in terms of the retainer. Fine. Uh, did you wear bl- braces, Matt? Yeah, twice. Twice? What, what What do you mean twice? I had them when I was like eight because my front teeth, my front four top teeth were sticking out so much that they said you got to put them on just to get them in line. And then I did get them. I, was in, I wore high braces for three years. Um, from seventh grade up top until, and bottom or just top top, top and bottom uh-huh. from seventh grade until I think tenth grade. See that's rough. Uh, those are two. Yeah, like you know that years. that is tough. What about you, Kenneth, Mister Model? Yeah, I, I had braces. I think I was like from when I was like ten to either twelve or thirteen. Okay, see that's a natural age to have braces. Yeah. High school is is tough. But anyway, I think and look, people are going to get upset with this. I kind of think that. The orthodontist, dentist, industrial complex is a little bit of a racket, okay? I honestly think that unless your teeth are super straight, they end up telling every kid that they need braces. And even if your teeth are a little bit out of whack, they send you to an orthodontist. The orthodontist makes big money billing your insurance, especially if you have insurance, the dentist makes big money for the referral to that orthodontist, and and the kid has to wear these braces. Now, if, if your teeth really are significantly out of whack, as was the case with uh, Matt Blaze when he was a young person, that's probably really a cause for needing braces. My teeth were a little bit askew, a little bit askew. I honestly don't think that if I never had braces, my teeth would look any different today. So why are we talking about this? Well, they're, they are trying to blow up the dental orthodontist industrial complex. Oral health companies, orthodontists, dentists, and regulators are right now engaged in a high-stakes war over how to best straighten your teeth. A couple of years ago, I started hearing something about Invisalign. Are you familiar with Invisalign? So Invisalign and something called Smile Direct Club, which I'd never heard of until a couple of days ago, as, as well as a slew of smaller companies, are sidelining orthodontists and taking market share from wire and bracket braces. So Invisalign, and I wish they had this when I got braces. I would have loved this in high school. These companies sell clear plastic aligners, which can progressively straighten your teeth. Unlike braces, they can be removed 
for eating, drinking, taking photos, and romantic encounters. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I went out on a date with a, a, a young lady that had braces, and we went to a bar, and basically the, my date went to the bathroom, and she was a nice girl, but she, you know, she had very visible braces. And the bartender said to me, now why is a high schooler in a bar? That's a separate discussion. But the bartender said to me, oh boy, he made all sorts of jokes about her wearing braces. You know, and that's the kind of thing you know, that you get very self-conscious about if you're wearing braces. Well, Invisalign kind of exploded during the pandemic. And um, what happened was the pandemic triggered a boom in sales of teeth aligners. You're sitting at home. You're on Zoom all day. You have some extra coin in your pocket from all that stimulus. And a lot of people decided to do the Invisalign. You probably have seen or heard these commercials. Wow. No braces, everything's hands-free. I wasn't so lucky. Invis is not your parents' braces. Invis is faster than braces and the clear aligner brand most trusted by doctors, Invisalign. So that strategy allows users to straighten their teeth without visiting a medical professional's office. The pandemic triggered a boom in sales and sales have um, trailed off over the past year. And so far, we've seen the the stock price go down for all these companies. Invisalign involves in-person oversight from a dentist or an orthodontist. The dentist or the orthodontist gets a cut of the revenue in exchange for selling and performing the service, which can take anywhere from several months to more than a year for full results. Um, how much do you think Invisalign costs? Matt Blaze, any idea? Oh, I would say like $2,000. Two, uh, Kenneth, what do you think? Any idea how much do you think it costs? Uh, I'd say like 3000 Okay, Invisalign costs about five to $6,000 per case. Five to $6,000. Because you, you can imagine the money this company made during the pandemic. Now, Smile Direct Club largely skips office visits by signing up patients directly. Customers receive an oral impression kit by mail. They ship it back to the company, which employs dentists to design teeth straightening plans and oversee cases remotely. Smart Smile Direct Club, unlike Invisalign, typically costs a few thousand dollars less than Invisalign. So you can imagine Invisalign is freaking out. The dentists are freaking out. The orthodontists are freaking out. And the American Association of Orthodontics argues that an orthodontist should oversee teeth straightening, of course, of course, since orthodontic treatment, quote, involves the movement of biological material. And no, it's not the same biological material that we're seeing in these in these Martian rocks. So what we're watching now is Smile Direct Club is developing an app based 3D mouth scanning system that could make the process even more enticing. Watch this story, folks. This is not going anywhere. This is going to be the next big battleground in the medical profession because between these, these Invisalign and Smile Direct Clubs versus the orthodontist. This is going to be the new front. Remember when the anesthesiologist went to war with the nurse anesthetists? This is the same kind of thing, only I think much more lucrative for everybody involved here. We'll see what happens. All right, hey, we're going to talk about social media and the effect on your mental health and your kids' mental health 
in just a moment. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Cardaris is going to join us in a moment. He is a bright guy and a guy that knows a thing or two about a thing or two. And he's got a new book out dealing squarely with digital madness. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Richer. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, the best thing you can do is join our Facebook group uh, by going on Facebook and searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. I do have to caution you that uh, if you do go on Facebook and spend a lot of time on there, you very well could go mad. That is at least one of the things uh, that uh, Dr. Nicholas Cardaris is warning us about. He is the founder and chief clinical officer of Omega Recovery. He's a former clinical professor at Stony Brook Medicine and a best-selling author whose latest book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Some of you, as I did, might have read uh, an excerpt in the New York Post on this on Sunday. And I have to say, I found it absolutely fascinating on the one hand and pretty frightening on the other. Dr. Cardaris, thank you for joining me on the radio. Yeah, hey, Frank, thanks for having me on uh, on your nocturnal travels uh, here. Believe me, I know it's a, a tough hour, so I, I appreciate <laughs> your uh, your willingness to come on. Hey, um, so in Reader's Digest version, obviously we want people to check out the book Digital Madness, but how is social media driving our mental health crisis? Yeah, well, I think so. The, the, the first step is beyond the obvious part that it's driving the depression epidemic that's happening. Depression has been skyrocketing over the last 10 to 15 years. So the, the basic premise there is that we weren't meant to be isolated, screen-staring, sedentary creatures. And so the fact that it does those things on a very superficial level um, drives part of the depression process that mm. You know, we're just not meant to, you know, we're meant to be face-to-face connected and we're meant to be more physically active. And you know, let's face it, the digital age has been a nuclear bomb on physical activity and face-to-face contact. Um, 
What's also driving the depression factor, though, is something called the social comparison effect, where, you know, we're obviously, if you're on social media, you're comparing your life to however many dozens or hundreds of friends or people that you're seeing on social media as either your friends or or influencers. And so if someone's life looks fantastic in their curated social media profile, it amplifies your sense of maybe my life isn't so great. And so, so those two are the depression aspects of it on the, on a deeper level. I think it's changing the architecture of our brains to process, to only be able, if you're young and you've grown up in this medium, you're, we're seeing young people that are only able to process things in really black and white polarity, because that's what the medium is. The medium is an extremification um, platform. So there's not a lot of nuanced discussion. You don't really see the grays in between. And so we're seeing that that morphs itself into black and white thinking, which is very toxic for people. If you only see things in black and white, that's, that's symptomatic mm. of a lot of personality disorders and a lot of other types of issues in addition to the obvious polarization in our society and the, the political world that we're in. And then you have the last piece of the puzzle, the last the cherry on the cake is the social contagion effect where you do have influencers that are so impactful on some young people's lives that not only are they trying to emulate Kylie Jenner's empty materialism, but you have psychiatrically unwell influencers who are getting literally hundreds of millions and billions of views from Tourette's disorder to dissociative disorder to gender dysphoria whose followers are now beginning to mimic their disorders in conscious or unconscious ways. So that's the 30,000 foot view of how um, it's blowing us up psychiatrically um, and, and, and as a society. You know, that's, uh, you said a lot of really interesting uh, stuff there, and I want to follow up on, on each of them. We're talking with Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. His new book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Um, is, is, is the problem in terms of social media use and mental health just limited to teens or is the problem just more pronounced in teens? Does social media make all of us of any age a, a little less mentally well? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's not good for any of us, but teens are more vulnerable to it because they're more vulnerable. To, they're, they're more developmentally vulnerable and they're more tabula rasas. They have a less clear sense of what their identity is. I'm not sure. I don't know how old you are. I'm in, I'm in my 50s. And we'd like to think that as we get older, we get a little bit more solidified in our sense of identity and who we are. When we're less fully baked, we're obviously more impressionable from some of this shaping effect. Um, and so the depression aspect of that, is it just anecdotal instances of uh, of depression that you're observing from people and teens or are, um, is there any data to support mm. that uh, depression is actually being driven by social media use? Yeah, so depression has been spiking before COVID in 2019. Depression, according to the World Health Organization, was the number one chronic, uh, uh, not mental illness, but, but overall illness. And it had been skyrocketing uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, correlating with social media even though the rates of antidepressant medications that we were prescribing had tripled. So we were increasing more psychiatric antidepressants. And yet, if you were looking at a, 
at a chart, the chart would be far outpacing the medications we were giving. So something was happening that was driving the depression. And so there were now over the last seven to eight years, a handful of studies that specifically were looking at the effect of social media on depression. And there were about five or six really good peer-reviewed studies that um, were calling it the Facebook comparison effect. And, and in fact, in one study, it showed that the more friends you had on Facebook, the more likely you were to have clinical depression. So more Facebook friends equaled more depression uh, and an ironic twist. Of, uh, so yeah, so there's pretty strong data to connect the two. One of the things that you mentioned in the article in the New York Post, and you also referenced uh, today, anecdotally, I have absolutely found to be the case. And that's the issue of po- politics ideological extremism. I could tell you as a longtime student and now a participant of talk radio, I hear it from uh, the callers uh, and the people that I speak to just anecdotally. There are fewer and fewer moderates out there. Mm-hmm. The people that are interested in in talking about politics and posting about politics and reading about politics, they used to. It wouldn't be unusual for somebody to sometimes vote Republican, sometimes vote mm-hmm. Democrat, to be fiscally conservative, socially liberal, or vice versa. Now, um, I am seeing extremism across the board, and that I think has manifested itself in terms of the types of people that are getting elected. Explain to folks how social media can actually lead to greater ideological extremism. Yeah, so, you know, as I said in the article today, the coin of the realm in social media is views or followers. And what gets the most views and followers is the most over-the-top and extreme content. Thoughtful discourse, nuanced thinking, you're going to get one or two people listening or reading or whatever the, the, the platform is. But when you get something that's at the extreme end, the thing that tickles our lizard brain the most, the thing that gets the most emotional reaction, that's what lights up. And not only does it light up, but then in an, you know, in true feedback loop mode, or you know, we call it an extremification loop, once the algorithm senses that you're leaning up a certain direction politically, it's going to amp up the dosage of that, whatever that leaning is. So you're going to get an echo chamber effect. So now if you were you know, leaned a little bit to the left after six months of being uh, rinsed and repeated through the, the spin cycle of the algorithms, you're going to get that extremified significantly to the point that, you know, people that I work with, I, you know, I treat in clinics, young adults, they're not able to process. They, they have such a level of emotional reactivity mm. that they're not able to have, you know, back in the day when I was a university professor and you actually debated people and had thoughtful conversations with people on the other side of whatever the uh, thing you were discussing were today you have people having emotional breakdowns if you challenge their thoughts because it's all emotional reactivity it's all lizard brain and no critical thinking Mm. well that is certainly a cause for concern maybe not so much as what you cited in terms of gender dysphoria. This is something that I have to tell you I've never thought about. I've spent a lot of time thinking about many of the issues that you raised, and we've chronicled on on the air the rise in the number of um, young people that self-identify as non-binary or transgender or something along, along those lines. How does social media increase gender dysphoria? So there, there's 
probably three or four disorders that are really popular on social media, either on TikTok videos or through a variety of other platforms. One is dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple, used to be multiple personality disorder. The other was borderline personality disorder. And the other one were people that were non-binary. And, and so if you fall down that rabbit hole, if you're a young high school age person, and let's face it, when we all went through high school, we're all going through sort of an exploratory phase. We're trying to figure things out. And I'm unhappy, let's say with necessarily my, my, where I'm at, or I'm not, I don't have a clearly defined sense of who I am. You know, in my day, you used to try to be a punk rocker or a jock or a, you know, I'm thinking of like the breakfast club and the, you know, different archetypes in that movie. Now, if you fall down the rabbit hole, the, the, the digital communities are so shaping in the sense that um, if I were, and I've had clients that this has happened to, so you're confused, you're depressed, you're, you're a little self-loathing and you fall down, um, you happen to trip upon the, uh, a non-binary platform or an influencer who now really has this performative, either TikTok videos or the, the, the chat rooms. Uh, because we're social animals that are shaped by our social environment, now our, our young people's social environment is almost entirely a digital landscape, mm. and it has a profound shaping effect on us. And and what I've seen is people who might be showing symptoms of dissociative disorder or borderline personality disorder, uh, the way that you can tell whether they have the real disorder or not, and that includes gender dysphoria, is take them off of social media for four to eight weeks and if you still got the the disorder, then they may have the real thing. But if they've taken, if they're away from social media and they tend to sort of no longer show those kind of presenting issues, then it was a social contagion, huh. a digital social contagion. Um, you um, you spend some time talking about a patient named Susie in the New York Post article. It's not this person's real name, right? Uh, but uh, in a very interesting profile on Susie. Who was Susie? How was she affected by social media and what can other people learn from her? Yeah. Typical young woman from the Midwest, 22 year old who um, showed no red flags in through adolescence or high school, which again goes against the grain of genuinely having a personality disorder. And uh, so she came in diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is a pretty heavy a pretty heavy duty personality disorder diagnosis there it's got a very high suicide risk and um extremely difficult to treat very histrionic very reactive a lot of self uh, self injurious types of behavior so she came in with some of those markers you know she was a cutter she would cut her arms and she had some depression and and the long and the short of it was when we got to know her better when our clinical director worked with her more closely and realized that she didn't have cuz if you have personality disorders, you, you show signs of that really early on. You don't develop it at, at 21 or 20. Found out that she had been really just swimming in social media 12 to 14 hours a day, mm. had been depressed because her friends from high school went off to college and she stayed at community college. And so she was left sort of isolated. And she started exploring different sites online and essentially tripped into a borderline personality site and there she learned how to cut herself, didn't mm. really genuinely have the real um, dynamics of a cutter. You know, real cutters will cut themselves because they'll talk about the emotional pain. The physical pain distracts them from the emotional pain. It's 
uh, it's a sense of control. She was just doing it because she saw it on oh. TikTok. And, and, and so she, she starts getting diagnosed. And once you get diagnosed, you start getting, you know, sort of pushed along a certain track. And, uh, but we realized when she had been off of, cause in our program, you don't have, it's a residential program. There's no computers or smartphones. There's no social media. In two weeks, she was significantly better. She wasn't cutting. She wasn't suicidal. And it seemed to have been the transitory social media effect and what, we, what we're calling now a pseudo disorder that mimicked the real disorder, but was social media shaped. You testified recently at a trial in Florida of a, a young man named Corey Johnson. Corey Johnson, in January, at 21 years of age, was sentenced to life in prison after mm-hmm. he was convicted of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. When he mm-hmm. was 17, he killed his friend at a sleepover in 2018, apparently because he was very impressed and taken with ISIS. Now, um how in the world does uh, going on social media lead a teenager to become a terrorist? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a pretty, um, I got to tell you, that was a pretty um, eye-opening experience for me to be testifying at, you know, the, just the trial photos themselves were shocking. And, uh, you know, you go down because I, I met with him for four hours in maximum security. I had to do an assessment with him and I spent quite a bit of time with him. And when I met him, because of COVID, his trial had been delayed for over a year at that point. So he'd been in prison away from any, let's call it external digital brainwashing, ideological brainwashing. And so he had sort of landed back to who he used to be before um, the brainwashing. And, and what I told my wife when I flew back from Florida and came back home, you know, when you meet somebody that you know is he essentially decapitated a 13 year old boy and tried to kill these two other people in the most horrific of crimes. You expect to meet a Manson, um, you know, somebody, a a monster. And, and this kid was Frank, I got to tell you, he was sweet. He was polite, made good eye contact, Mm. shook my hand. I told my wife what was really shocking or troubling for me was if this kid would have filled out an ad to be a babysitter for our kids, I would have hired him. Mm. Um, he seemed so normal. Um, and so what happened with him was at age 16, he was politically progressive. He was always interested in politics. So he was a YouTuber. His main um, digital uh, platform was YouTube. And, you know, the YouTube algorithm smells what predilections you have and then increases the amplitude of the the, the recommended feed that it sends you. And so he happened to watch uh, a short YouTube video about the Holocaust. And because he watched that, the algorithm started sending him Holocaust denying videos and then white supremacy videos. So within about three or four months, he became a white supremacist, progressive liberal at 16, white supremacist by 16 and a half. And then at some point he randomly saw a video, a YouTube video about Assad and uh, Syria and the conflict in Syria that was happening at the time. And within a couple of weeks, ISIS. He started getting ISIS recruitment videos. Now, the FBI showed me some of these recruitment videos, and these are slick, high production values. If I was an, a lost, confused kid looking for a team to belong to, I, these videos made ISIS seem appealing. They made ISIS seem like they were, you know, they built wells in their communities. They were about community empowerment. And so he got sucked in and brainwashed and seduced. And 
you know, I asked him because once he got recruited and converted to Islam, they started sending him decapitation videos. And he had seen at the time of the murders, he had been exposed over, it was 1,100 or 1,200, you know, really graphic decapitation videos. And I said to Corey, I said, the first time you were sent a decapitation video, I mean, most people, and he said, yeah, the first time I almost vomited, I felt sick, but I felt like it was going to boot camp as a Marine. It was a toughening up, toughening up. And, and by the time I saw my 10th or my 100th video, he had been desensitized to it. You know, and I, I kind of equated that to if you're a medical student and you have to do cadaver right. work your first year of medical school, you almost vomit the first time. But by the 10th cadaver, you're having lunch over the cadaver. Sure. You get, you know, we all get used to things. And so, you know, in a year and a half, he went from nice kid to fully indoctrinated, brainwashed ISIS murderer. And, and as, I, as I write in the book, Digital Madness, 20 or 30 years ago, before social media, would this kid have been, you know, to be radicalized like that, you know, he might have joined the cult if he had a charismatic cult leader that might have done it the old fashioned way. But now with the ubiquity and the pervasiveness of social media, these lost and lonely kids are the low lying mm. fruit that are so easy to manipulate and pluck off with these algorithms that are like heat-seeking missiles finding these vulnerable kids. Uh, Dr. Cardaris, I have to I have to run. We're out of time. I have a, a lot of other questions on this. I'd love to continue the conversation um, in a week or two if we can convince you to stay up late for uh, another uh, another day. I hope everybody checks out your book, Digital Madness. Thank you. And as an Art Bell fan, I'm, I'm used to staying up late, so uh, sure, it'd be a pleasure. I, I appreciate that. And if people didn't see that article in the post today... I've just linked to it on my Facebook page. If Only go on Facebook long enough to avoid mental illness. <laughs> Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. There's actually some very helpful hints on how you can avoid having social media become addictive. And for you or a child or a grandchild, there's some helpful hints as to not have social media being a deleterious impact on your, on your psyche. Uh, if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. As I mentioned, if you want to know what we're playing, just join our Facebook group. Uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. About uh, 15, 20 minutes ago, 17 minutes ago, I think, to be precise, uh, we played the song uh, There She Goes. And uh, I said, I, I asked as it was playing, I said to Matt Blaze, who's the artist on this? And we didn't get an answer quick enough. So, sure enough, I said... That it was sixpence, none the richer. 
Well, I want to thank uh, Gary Brenner, who uh, sent me an email and and pointed out that uh, this was the original recording of There She Goes by the Laws. So that was an error by mine uh, with an assist on the error from uh, Matt Blaze. It wasn't one of the songs that I requested for today, but we weren't able to get a lot of the rights to the songs that I was hoping to play uh, in for today. So that's why I was unprepared for that. So I appreciate that. Gary Brenner is very active in the uh, movement for uh, Convention of States. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to the, their website, conventionofstates.com. If for no other reason than for appreciation for his correcting my error, go to his website, maybe before it now. He's trying to end federal tyranny. Well, why not? Conventionofstates.com. Hey, uh, coming up in just a few minutes, I'll take your calls. I have some fun stories from the weekend that I haven't gotten to. No more guests, so we're going to have plenty of time for you and me to converse. 800-848-9222. And then we got uh, denunciations. No, excuse me, commendations coming up. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight we are moments away from commendations and if you are a baltimorean wondering what a commendation is stay tuned because you're about to find out but i want to give you an opportunity to be heard on anything we're talking about 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 very very pleased to be here Hopefully you had a fun weekend. I'll give you some highlights of uh, my weekend as well. And if you ever want to email me on anything we're discussing, you can do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Let me say hello to Bill in New Jersey. Hello, Bill. Bill? Bill? Hello. I think Bill fell asleep. Anyone? Bill's a snorer. Anyone? You know, they say not everybody that snores suffers from sleep apnea, but they say snoring can be a warning sign of sleep apnea. Leave Bill on. Leave leave Bill up and let him snore through uh, until he wakes up. You know, we'll leave him. Lock lock Bill in there. And in the meantime, let's say hello to Joe in Ronkonkoma. I know Joe's awake. That's right, my brother. Uh, how was your weekend, Frank? I had an awesome one this week. Great. I'm glad glad to hear that. Mine was great, too. Uh, me and uh, Frankie from Glendale, we met up at a car show. I had your hat on. He had Sleewood's hat on. And, uh, we, you know, we ha- he's a great guy, Frank from Glendale. Yeah, I saw uh, that photo. That's great. I'm glad you guys got together. I hope you had fun. Yeah, we did. Um, that's why I'm calling in about, you know, about social media and how it's destroying America and destroying our- uh, I brought my son with me, and I t- 
told him no cell phones, no nothing. We walked around, and Frankie, like, like an alcoholic, you know, I see him reaching for his phone, and I'm like, tell him, no. Kids are so addicted to their phones and uh, social media. Scary. It's it's scary and it's very depressing. Well, uh, yeah, no, Joe, I think you're right, unfortunately. Uh, appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Frank, great, great guest you have there. I'm a nuclear medicine technologist from Stony Brook, and um, I got a couple things to say to you. Um, and then I have a question about Carmine. Um, so don't mute me. <laughs> Our first pizza, Little Vincent's in Huntington. Crunchy crust, great sauce, good mutts. And then you want to go for something called a Brooklyn Slice. That's an amazing Sicilian with sauce, cheese sauce, and then Parmesan on it. So, but about uh, social media, um, it, it get, it, it, you know, people are addicted to putting their life out there. And uh, you look at it, and you, you don't want to see the, everything they had to eat every day. Uh, you, don't, you don't want to see their belly ring with their tattoos. I want to go back to the time when um, we had a piece of paper, a notepad in the kitchen table, and my mother said, oh, Chris Dunn called. She left me a note, called Chris back. And then we got together, and we had some cigars and scotch, like I'll do tomorrow night with my brothers in my lodge. I mean, what do you think about it? How are you going to protect Carmine against this? Well, uh, it's uh, a good uh, question, and it's actually something my wife and I spend a great deal of time talking about. And, you know, uh-huh. I'm hoping to invite Dr. Cardaris back for a future show because – One of the things that um, we didn't get to is when it's appropriate for youth to be able to use a mobile phone or an iPad or something like that. And I have some friends that have young children, and they're on that iPad and that phone all the time. And I heard one of them this weekend, and they they were telling someone else, they were telling another parent that was being critical of this parenting approach, oh, no, 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 this really will help them get acclimated to technology. He's already so young, but he knows how to swipe and everything. And, you know, obviously I'm not going to tell what another parent should do, but I can tell you my wife and I, that is not our view at all. It's disrespectful. I've had people, I'm sitting there with them and they're on the phone, and they just said, well, I'm erasing things. I go, well, why don't you do that in private? I'm sitting here with you, spending my time, and you're staring at your phone like I'm some kind of like, uh, uh, I'm Casper the Friendly Ghost. Yeah. I'm glad you got it. I'm glad you got it. Mr. Cruz, I'm glad you got to catch up with Joe Piscopo, um, a, a great friend of mine. And um, um, you, I'll tell you, you're the gentleman after 12 o'clock. You really are. Well, well really thank you. Um, so, um, yeah, I actually, I saw Joe at the uh, 100th anniversary gala. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. Joe does a great job. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let me say hello. You know, we'll put Bill. Now I'm getting annoyed by Bill. It's actually no longer funny. It's more annoying at this point. We'll put him on hold. If he wakes up later, so be it. Uh, Peter in the Bronx. Hey, Peter. It was great to see you at uh, at softball Saturday. Thanks for playing. I'm going to talk about the game a little later. I had a great time. Um, this this book is perfect for what what's going on, and and you obviously knowing my my past. Um, what's going with social media? It's it's like a giant junior high school, and people are getting off on getting their likes. So there's a dopamine fix that you get, and that's why it's addicting because you keep going back to check mm. to see who liked your posts. 
Yeah. Um, you know, what do you think the solution is? Is it just getting people to use social media less or is there more to it? There's um, there's more to it. You, I think what the doctor said, getting them to use it less. And if people are going to use it, you have to explain what the pitfalls are to it. And, and that's one of the pitfalls because people aren't looking to, you know, they're just not picking their heads up and seeing uh, the real world still exists. Mm. You know, mm. no. and, and that's a big and that's a big problem. The the um, you know personalization is is, is disappearing. Well said, Peter. And it's, and it's sad. Well said. Hey, great seeing you the other day. Thanks again for playing right. in the softball game and for your contribution to Tunnel to Towers. If you want to make a contribution to my efforts in the Tunnel to Towers walk, you can go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Whatever you can do. If you can do $100, that's great. If you can do $10, that's great. If you can do $5, whatever. Whatever you can do, walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. I want to thank Chuck from Plaza College, uh, which is a great institution and a big supporter of this show. But Chuck uh, made a substantial contribution to our efforts to the uh, Tunnel to Towers Foundation. So far, that's our biggest contribution. So that's uh, very, very thoughtful of Chuck. If you want to see if you can outdo him, go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Meantime, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... I must give a pat on the back to the following people, places, or entities. I must begin with the practice of walking, a big commendation for walking. Uh, A new paper suggests that it takes far less exercise than was previously thought to lower blood sugar after eating. Walking after eating is one of my favorite things to do. I just feel better. With it, and I always found found that it helped the digestion. I had no idea of the marked and significant, very real world implications for blood sugar. But it's absolutely the case, according to this new analysis published in the journal Sports Medicine. So um, scientists have also found that going for a fifteen minute walk after a meal can reduce blood sugar levels which can help ward off complications such as type 2 diabetes. Turns out even just a few minutes of walking, though, can activate these benefits. Every time you have a meal, folks, go for a walk. If you have a big meal, go for a walk. Walk, walk, walk. You don't have to do 10,000 steps. Sure, it helps. And they say walking at a brisk pace is the best form, not the best form, but is a good form of exercise. But um, just move around a little bit. Go for a walk. I, uh, I think this is great. All right. Uh, I want to give a commendation to um, Cardi B um, in uh, an article that might be printed out of order. Um, Cardi B made a substantial donation. Did we? Okay, there we go. Cardi B surprised her former Bronx Middle School. With a $100,000 donation for the arts, Grammy Award winner Cardi B gave the students at her former middle school a big surprise on Tuesday when she stopped by with a $100,000 donation. IS-232 in the Bronx, Morris Heights. She spoke, went there, which is a really cool thing for a middle schooler to be visited. Whatever you think of Cardi B and her music and her persona is not really my thing. But for a lot of young people like it or not, she's a big influence. She's a big star. 
And to be visited by a star like that, a Grammy award-winning star, is a big deal. And then for her to donate $100,000 to go towards supporting after-school programs, including tutoring, music, and dance, this is a great thing. Uh, Whatever you think of Cardi B, this is a wonderful thing as far as I'm concerned. I want to commend the pizzeria Una Napolitana. Well, it's official. New York's own Una Pizza Napolitana is the very best pizza parlor in the world. It had already been named the best pizza parlor in the United States. Well, last week was uh, dubbed by Top Pizza, which is an online guide focused on the best Italian pizza in the world. They dubbed this pizza spot, which I've never been to. I think I tried it once. I think my father um, and stepmother picked up some from there. And I thought it was good, but did I think it was the best in the world? Not the version that I tried. But I think you, the whole experience is you had to eat it in the in the restaurant. But they have dubbed, uh, in a tie at least, Una Pizza Napolitana as the best pizza in the world. It tied with Imasanelli di Francesco Martucci, a pizza shop in Caserta which is a region in southern Italy. So congratulations to both Una Pizza Napolitana and Imasanelli di Francesco Martucci. I want to commend Michael Gordon. Michael Gordon is a Chick-fil-A employee in Florida who is being praised for his heroic actions. Authorities said, and I think a lot of this was captured on video, he stopped a man from carjacking a woman and a baby. He was working at a location in the Fort Walton Beach area last Wednesday afternoon when the woman started screaming for help. And uh, the woman told deputies that she was getting her nephew out of his car seat when the suspect approached her. The woman said the man was carrying a stick and wielding it in a way she believed that he would use it as a weapon. The woman said she stepped back away from the man and he lunged at her, grabbed her keys from her waistband, got inside the car, got inside the car. So she's screaming like crazy. And then this fellow, Mr. Gordon, runs out. And what happens? He gets punched in the face. He gets punched in the face by this carjacker, William Branch. Luckily, he was not seriously injured. And so he doesn't, once he gets punched in the face, he doesn't back away. He keeps fighting with this guy, wrestles the guy to the ground, Before other people run over, Gordon is then holding the man down until other people can intervene and the police come. Um, This is great. How many times do you hear stories about people seeing someone in trouble and they just keep walking? They just keep walking and and don't, don't do anything. Well, Michael Gordon is a model citizen as far as I'm concerned. I want to commend the... um, founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Chonard. He's an eccentric rock climber that became a billionaire with a very interesting business approach um, to Patagonia. Well, now, Mr. Chonard, his wife, and their two adult children have unbillionaired themselves. That's right. They have transferred their ownership of Patagonia, which is valued at about $3 billion, to a specially designed trust 
and a nonprofit organization. They were created to preserve the company's independence and ensure that all of its profits, $100 million a year, $100 million a year, can you imagine? That's what Patagonia takes in. They're going to use all of the company's profits to combat climate change and protect undeveloped land around the globe. First of all, this is a great thing in my view. I know some people get upset when you mention the word climate change, and they say, no, there's no climate change. It's only the hottest summer ever recorded every other year because of, uh, I don't know, the sun is hotter or whatever. I mean, the, the people that really hate climate change, they really don't even like to hear the word climate change. So I don't want to offend their sensibilities. But to protect undeveloped land around the globe, that's a great thing. It's a wonderful thing. But even if you hate both of those things. You hate the idea of combating climate change and protecting undeveloped land. This is a tremendous personal sacrifice to essentially give away your entire fortune. I'm sure this fellow's not going to be starving anytime soon, but to be on paper worth $3 billion one day and then to just give it all away, irrespective of what you think of the cause, you have to admire that commitment. I have to give a commendation to Roger Federer, a genius who made tennis look effortless, who is now hanging up his racket and retiring. He um, is 41 years old, and he's been dealing with some injuries in recent years. One of the greatest champions of all time. Um, Incredible longevity. He won his first of 20 Grand Slams back in 2003. And he has been a top-notch professional tennis player for 24 years. Still winning. Seemed to be defying time. And on Thursday, two weeks, um, and Thursday he said that he's hanging it up after uh, this recent tournament in, um, in London. So um, an incredible tennis career by Roger Federer. And, you know, one of the topics that we've done from time to time, and this came up in my, uh, on my just personal life on Saturday, people were talking about folks that don't know when to hang them up. And I really give a lot of credit to people in any field, entertainment, sports, business, journalism, uh, any field that leave at the top of their game. And Roger Federer is doing that, or pretty close to the top of his game. I want to commend the winners of this year's IG Nobel Prizes. Um, The IG Nobel Prizes are a good-natured parody of the Nobel Prize. They honor achievements that first make people laugh, and then make people think. This is an unapologetically campy award ceremony that usually features miniature operas, scientific demos, and 24-7 lectures whereby experts must explain their work twice, once in 24 seconds and the second in just seven words. Acceptance speeches are limited to 60 seconds, and as the motto implies, the research being honored might seem ridiculous at first glance, but that doesn't mean it's devoid of scientific merit. So congratulations to everybody that won one of these IG Nobel Prizes, and uh, including in the category of art history, uh, Peter D. Smet and Nicholas Helmuth won for their study, 
a multidisciplinary approach to ritual enema scenes on ancient Maya pottery. Very important. Also want to commend the uh, winners in the category of applied cardiology. Aliska Prashovska, Elijah Shakashi, Frederick Behrens, Daniel Lind, and Mariska Kret for seeking and finding evidence that when new romantic partners meet for the first time and feel attracted to each other, their heart rates synchronize. And in the literature category, Eric Martinez, Francis Molica, and Edward Gibson for analyzing what makes legal documents unnecessarily difficult to understand. That's something I've wondered about myself. In the biology category, Glaucho Machado and Solomary Garcia Hernandez for studying whether and how constipation affects the mating prospects of scorpions. That is something we've been wondering about for a long time in the scientific community. In the medicine category, Marcin Jasinski, Martina Majewski, Anna Brodziak. Oh, there's a bunch of people here. I'm not mentioning everybody. Um, for showing that when patients undergo some forms of toxic chemotherapy, they suffer fewer harmful side effects when ice cream replaces one traditional component of the procedure. uh, That actually is pretty interesting. Uh, These are all interesting. Again, just because these are funny and silly and campy doesn't mean it's not important. In the engineering category, the people that won there, including Goro Amura and Yoshiyuki Yuino, They've discovered or tried to discover, they were awarded the prize for trying to discover the most efficient way for people to use their fingers when turning a knob. In the physics category, Frank Fish, Ji Ming Yuan, Ming Lu Chen, and Attila Inyasek for trying to understand how ducklings manage to swim in formation. And in the Peace Prize category, this is the last one I'll mention, but it's worth checking out all these prizes because it's actually pretty fun. I had a lot of fun with this this weekend, as you can tell. In the Peace Prize category, the winners here, including Kim Peters, Leo Ticano, Bianca Biersma, Terrence Dores Cruz, and Sergio Lo Iacono, for developing an algorithm to help gossipers decide when to tell the truth and when to lie. Very important. I want to commend the group's Tacos Together... Moxie Weighted Blankets and Real Salt Lake, they have come together, these three entities, to create a 10,000-square-foot blanket fort. This fort is the world's largest, the largest blanket fort in history. They are breaking the record of 6,736 feet. Organizers said all the blankets used in the attempt are going to be donated to a local homeless shelter. Now, that's wonderful. Not only is it great to break a record like that, get a little recognition, keep pushing the envelope bigger and better, but I'm sure there are a lot of homeless people that could use a nice blanket. And I want to commend, penultimately, the state of Vermont. We spoke a little bit about Vermont with Obi Murray the other day. But now we know that, uh, according to a new study from U.S. News & World Report, they have... And the Hill, actually. They have compiled the states with the highest and lowest pollution levels. And whether it's air or water pollution, Vermont has the lowest pollution levels in the entire country. Now, I've never been to Vermont, but now I am putting it on my list of places to go. I already wanted to go there. 
try the maple syrup, see if it's all it's cracked up to be. But I do want to check it out. And now that I know there's no pollution there, I'm loving it, or at least less than anybody. And finally, I want to commend the good old-fashioned multivitamin. Because taking a daily multivitamin might be associated with improved brain function in older adults, and the benefit appears to be greater for those with a history of cardiovascular disease. If you have a history of cardiovascular disease and you don't want to lose your mind, take a multivitamin. That's at least what the science suggests. That's this week's commendations. Anybody that you felt I left out, anybody that you want to comment on that I did commend, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Oh, that's cool. So this is Cardi B, which uh, I would never have picked, would never have known. But that's cool that she's got Jimmy Snuka in the first line of the song. I love that. That is great. 800-848-9222. Hey, let's check in over at uh, with Bill in New Jersey. He was snoring when last we checked in with him. Let's see if he's woken up. Hello, Bill. No, still snoring. Still snoring. And I do, I'm serious. I actually think that is a, that sounds like the snore of a man who has something, some sort of an obstruction. Wake up! Right? You know, I mean, that's not a, that's not a healthy sounding snore. I mean, I'm not an expert. I don't pretend to be. But uh, I don't know. Tom is in the boogie down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yes. Hi, uh, yeah, Frank. Yeah. I'd like to say that. They should, where inflated dollars are concerned, I think I mentioned it before, but they should be put into industries to keep people working to pay salaries. They've got to stop sending money home to individuals where individuals say, well, look, uh, I've got the money. I was going to go to work, but I'd rather stay home and watch the Flintstones the, uh, from the beginning. You know, I'd rather watch the Flintstones all day long and then Gilligan's Island reruns. That's what they have to do with the money, and it would be better. And to take inflated dollars and to put it in to uh, medical needs for people, uh, for the insurance companies, if they if they need uh, medical assistance, they don't have to worry about uh, getting insurance. It would be a better situation. <clears throat> All right, Tom. To do Th- that financially. Thank you. thank you, Tom. I have no no further comment on uh, anything that you uh, that you alluded to there. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Let's check in over with Bill. Ooh. Doesn't sound good. All right, now this is audio of Curtis Sliwa snoring. I recorded this. This is a few years old, but I recorded this while Curtis was sleeping. Listen to this. It does sound a little similar to Bill. 
put Bill up too. No, no, leave Curtis up there. And then here's Bill on top of Curtis. It almost sounds like a snoring duet. See, Curtis's snore, it sounds healthier than Bill's. Bill, it sounds like like almost like a motor that's sputtering. Curtis, while it's very audible, it's 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 kind of a uniform sound. You hear like he's just breathing through right, his mouth. Right. Right. Bill sounds a little unhealthier. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned for Bill. All right. Thank you, Curtis. Thank you, Bill. Um, and, and by the way, it, lest anyone think I was joking, that was absolutely Curtis's snore. 100%. Not a joke. Not shtick at all. 800-848-9222. So, as promised, on Friday, there was a brand new edition of the Racket Report posted. The the Racket Report is a podcast that I do that's separate from this radio program that's focused on organized crime issue. And boy, what an interesting episode this was. My guest in the episode that you can hear now, and if you want to hear this, you can just search The Racket Report on any podcast app. My guest was Michael Franzis. Michael Franzis was a capo in the Colombo crime family, went to prison, and he's come out of prison, and for the last 30 years has not jaywalked. He has led a model life. He is a best-selling author. He's written seven books. He is a motivational speaker, born-again Christian. And we talked about, by the way, in addition to being a captain in the Colombo crime family, his father was a tough guy's tough guy, a gangster's gangster, an old school tough guy. John Sonny Franzisi. If you want to learn about the history of mafiadom in the 20th century and the 21st, look up John Sonny Franzisi. John Sonny Franzisi got convicted at, at 93 years old of a prison sentence, served eight years, outlived the prison sentence, and that he died recently. I'm sure he's dead. Unlike uh, Barry Levinson and and uh, Tina Turner, I am absolutely certain that John Sonny Franzis, or Franzisi, depending on your pronunciation, is, is dead. So anyway, I talked to Michael about what it was like growing up with a father in the mob. What is it like growing up having a father who is not just in the mob, but who is whose life seems so defined by being a leader in the mob? Well, you know, Frank, in my father's case, it was even more uh, intense than that, because I don't know if you recall, I don't know how old you were during that time, but back in the 60s, you know, the government's uh, tactics against organized crime are a bit different than they are today in current days. You know, they have a lot of undercover surveillance. They have high-tech surveillance equipment, informants. It wasn't like that back in the 60s. My dad was the target of about eight or nine different agencies, from federal agencies to state and local. And every one of those cars would have – agencies, rather, would have a car parked around my house 
24 hours a day, seven days a week from the time I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And that's how they investigated him. That's how thoroughly and intensely, because he was, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was the John Gotti of his day in terms of media attention and limelight and all of that. So as a result of that, I love my father. I idolized him. He was a good father, a good husband to my mother. And I always saw law enforcement as the enemy. So um, and I hated them growing up for that reason, because I saw them harass my family. I had, you know, run ins with them as a kid, you know, a lot of stories I can tell you. So, you know, and then seeing the power that my father wielded, the respect that he got, it was it made a tremendous impression impression on me. And to me, you know, he was a man's man and he was somebody that I wanted to emulate, you know, growing up, not so much being a mob guy, just being a man like he was. Now, Michael, who you just heard there, and if you want to hear the whole interview, you have to listen to the podcast. Just search The Racket Report on iTunes, Spotify, any podcast app, The Racket Report with Frank Moreno. Michael, when he was on the street, when he was a gangster, he was on the street at a time when mobsters really made a lot of money. Now, these days, there's not really a lot of people in the mafia that are making a lot of money. Michael made millions. Millions. There's nobody making millions these days. I mean, nobody. Maybe is there some mafia person that's making millions? Maybe one. I don't think so, honestly. But he came about in a different era. And so one of the first people that I interviewed for the Racket Report was Ori Spado. Ori Spado, who they call the Hollywood gangster, was a very good friend of of John Sonny Franzese. And I asked Ori when I interviewed him about Michael. And what he thought about Michael. This is what Ori Spado, the, the guy they call the godfather of Hollywood, this is what he said. Michael, uh, for absolutely, is a very intelligent guy. There's no question. He wanted to become a doctor originally, and he could have been a doctor. Michael was a smart guy, and I'll give him credit there. And that's about the most I'm going to say about Michael Franchise. So... I think a lot of that intelligence and a lot of that ambivalence about how to characterize Michael, I think that comes across in the interview. So please listen to the interview. I also tweeted a link to it if you don't have a podcast app. Uh, my Twitter is at Frank Morano. Uh, Michael has an upcoming show at Resorts Atlantic City, and we actually have a pair of tickets to give away. What we're going to do is anyone that retweets my tweet with the link to this show we're going to enter into a drawing to give a pair of tickets away uh, for this. So just go to my Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, if you want to see his show at Resorts Atlantic City in November, I think it's VIP tickets where you get to meet him, get stuff signed, whatever. You can uh, just retweet my tweet, and we're going to give away a pair. So that'll be fun. Now, interesting Sunday I had. It was the final regular season game of the Staten Island Ferry Hawks. Now, I love the Ferry Hawks. This is their inaugural season. And uh, I was at the first game, and it was great to be at the last game of the season. They um, they were playing the Long Island Ducks, which, who are their crosstown rivals. And um, they, it, it's an independent league team. It's not a minor league team. It's an independent league team. And it happens to be owned by John Katsimatidis, who is also the uh, the owner of our radio station. 
and the owner of Red Apple Audio Network, which syndicates this program. So um, they invited all of us to go to the game. I thought that's kind of cool. You know, we can go to the game and um, be there for the last season. Fun. Fun. So Rachel, my wife, Carmine, my son, and me go to the ballpark. So we give them our names, and there were tickets waiting for us. Hands me a pair. The person at Will Call hands me a pair of tickets. And also says as he's handing me the tickets, oh, you guys are, this is what I heard, you guys are in suite seven. And here, take these red wristbands. This is going to give you suite access so that you can go up there. Okay, cool, right? So Carmine, all of nine months old, this is his fourth professional baseball game now. Carmine, Rachel, me, get in the elevator. We go up to the suite level. We get out there, and we start walking to suite seven. As we're walking, you know, we're peeking our head into all the other suites. Who do we see? Sid Rosenberg in suite 17. Sid was there with his wife, his son, his son's friend. And so we go in there, and Sid Rosenberg, of course, is the host of the morning show on WABC and the author of the uh, new book, Citizens United. He had a great appearance with Brian Kilmeade on Fox News on uh, Saturday. But we go in and spend a few minutes talking with uh, Sid and his wife, Danielle, and Gabriel. And, you know, we're hanging out there for a few minutes. And I said, all right, Sid, we're going to get going. You know, um, I think we're, they have us in suite seven. And Sid immediately says, well, who's there? Who's there? Now, Sid's always looking for the opportunity to see somebody that, that's a VIP that he might be missing an opportunity I'm to insane. socialize with. So I said, I don't know. We haven't been there yet. We don't know who's there. He says, oh, all right. Okay. I said, maybe we'll come back. Maybe we'll come back and see you guys if we don't have a good group over there. So then as Rachel and Carmine and I are getting ready to leave, who walks in? John and Margot Katsimatidis, the owners of the team, the our, our bosses, and good friends of ours for a long time, even before I worked for them. And they walk in with a whole crew. Uh, Emily, uh, our chief legal counsel, Emily's there with her family. Some other folks are there as well. They walk in with a whole crew, and and John's in a good mood and everything. Then they bring the food in, and everyone's offering us food and drinks. It was such a good time. And then uh, I said to John and Margot, we spent a few minutes talking to them. I said, John and Margot, I think they have us in Suite 7, so we're going to go check that out, and then maybe we'll come back. And John, you know, John's very easygoing. You know, he says, whatever, okay, you know, you should stay in whichever suite has better food. That's what he said. So, okay, I, we leave, and we start walking to Suite 7. And as I'm walking away, I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. All the, all the people that I work with, they're in Suite 17. Is it possible that I misheard the guy at Will Call? say, Sweet 17 instead of Sweet 7, right? Maybe I heard him say Sweet 7. Maybe he meant Sweet 17 because everybody's in Sweet 17. I said, I don't know. Let's walk down there, see what's going on. So we walk down there, and we go in. Sure enough, there's one lady in there. 
I'm not going to say her name, but I, it was not a lady that I ever remembered meeting. So I said, hi, I'm Frank. This is my wife, Rachel. Is there some comment? And she's very pleasant. She said, oh, how old? Oh, you know, he's so cute. That's such a nice age. Ba, 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 ba. We're making small. T- uh, oh, and so I asked this woman. No, she asked me, um, who do you know here? Or, or how did you end up here? Uh, um, I, I forget. You know, we're kind of making introductory remarks. And uh, she she says to me that she's Nelson's wife. Now, we have a guy that works here. I believe he's a lawyer by the name of Nelson Happy. So I'm assuming this is Nelson Happy's wife. Right? She didn't say Nelson Happy. She said, I'm Nelson's wife. I said, okay. I never. I don't think I know. I met Nelson's wife. Okay, that's her. Got it. And then um, <laughs> within three minutes, another woman comes in, and I couldn't tell if she worked there or if she was a fan, but she's decked out in all sorts of Fairy Hawks gear, head to toe. Woman walks in, and the woman that I met starts screaming at this woman that walks in. This woman that walks in crosses the threshold, and the woman that had been in the room that had spent the last five minutes with us, she starts screaming at this lady, no, no, no. No, 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 you can't stay here. I'm family, so we're staying up here, and you're not, so you have to go downstairs. And she starts screaming at this Wow. Like, Carmine, Rachel, and me are in between these two women who are now screaming at each other. And the other woman is clearly embarrassed. She says, well, you know, the next time you have something to say to me, you say it in private. And she says, well, I'm telling you now, you got to go. You, you, because we're family and we're staying here. You got to go. I, I, I don't know what's going on in here. The lady that gets yelled at leaves. My wife leaves to go to the bathroom with Carmine to change him or something. And I'm now in the suite alone with this screaming woman. And she's very nice to me. She, she says, I'm sorry. Sorry you had to, you know, see that, uh, it's uh, it's just something that's been going on for two years. So, oh, okay, well, whatever, whatever. And we go back to making small talk. Uh, you know, so what kind of work do you do? Oh, I do this. And then she works overnight. She might be listening right now. She works overnight. She's telling me this. Blah, blah, blah. And she's telling me, yeah, Nelson's schedule. He's got, I said, how many games have you been to? Do you go to a lot of games? She, uh, she said, yeah, I've been to a couple. You know, with my schedule, Nelson's schedule, it's tough. And then she said, what do you do? I said, oh, I'm on the radio station I'm on overnight, ba, 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 ba. and then that's that. So uh, Rachel and Carmine come back. No food in there, by the way, and more important, no booze in there. So Rachel and Carmine come back, and then two other women come in into the suite that I also don't know. And one's named Jennifer, and one's named so-and-so, and one of them had a birthday yesterday, so we wishing them a happy birthday. And we don't know who any of these people are. So then... Um, I hear the first woman, the yeller, telling this new woman who's come in, right, saying, yeah, well, I don't know the other person. Name. Cinda was in here. I told her she had to go. She had to go. She couldn't stay in here. I don't know what's going on. And now I'm looking at Rachel. Rachel wants no part of this. She wants no part of this. She said, yeah, you know, why don't we go down and get something to eat? Great. Okay. So we leave. And Rachel just says to me, 
She says, I'm not staying in there with, with these. I'm not staying in there with those screaming strangers. I don't know who they are. And then um, I, I said, you know, I think maybe we, we had the wrong suite. Maybe we were supposed to be in suite 17 and not suite 7. And she says, yeah, of course we were not. You think they put us in there with a bunch of strangers that we don't know while everybody else you work with is in suite 17? She says, this is the, the typical Frank thing to do. This, is, this reminded me of the time that we were in the Hamptons and we slept at the wrong house, is what she said. And she's basically lecturing me and everything. So we go down, we get, we get a burger or something, and then we go back up to suite 17. And so now suite 17 is filled with all of my colleagues. All sorts of people that work at the radio station, behind the scenes, in front of the scene, and John is there, and Margot's there, and I start and I start telling Margot the story of exactly what happened, and uh, she's trying to wrap her head around this, and she says, "Yeah, I thought that was weird when you said um, that you were going to another suite, but I, you know, Margot said uh, you never know with you. I thought maybe Frank has his own suite separate from where we're doing. You just never know with Frank, you know." Uh, so that was that. We ended up in the wrong suite, and then we stayed for the game. We had a great time. It was uh, a lot of fun, and uh, I hope uh, I hope they can build on the inaugural season success next year and uh, do some other interesting things in terms of promotion. There's going to be a uh, a lot of things going on at that ballpark in the off season. Uh, one of the colleges is going to play there. We're having a charity softball game there on Thursday. For Sid Rosenberg's charity, a charity that he's involved in. So if you're interested in that and going buying tickets to that, you can email me. I'll, I'll connect you with how to get uh, tickets for that. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. But that was my Sunday, is uh, check, uh, hanging out at the ballpark. Carmine wore his Ferry Hawks jersey, which, which everybody loved. I think my wife uh, shared some photos on Instagram, and uh, we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. And it was a fun story, a relatively harmless story going into the wrong suite. Nobody seemed too upset, except for that lady. Did you say Abe Lincoln? No, I say Abe Lincoln. I said, hey, Lincoln. (laughs) 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. 
So uh, we had no meeting Friday. So I went home shortly after. And um, usually, you know, I, I take a nap. Or not take a nap. I go to sleep as soon as I got home, as was the case on Friday. I stuck around a little bit to see um, Marlena Shivo, who was going on the morning show. And uh, then I go home and go to sleep. And uh, I, normally my wife will wake me up around 1, one thirty or so to take care of Carmine. But for whatever reason, Carmine ended up taking a long nap on Friday. And... Um, so I slept from about 7 a.m. thereabouts to about 2.30 in the afternoon. And my wife said I was wondering whether I should wake you up or not so that, you know, you know because it's Friday and you don't want to sleep too late because then you have a difficult time going to bed. So then we go through our Friday, which involved a lot of cleaning and a lot of stressing about the abundance of things in my office and the cluttering that I'm doing. It was a very stressful exchange. Uh, maybe maybe I'll tell you more about that later. But then go to bed, 10, 30, 11 o'clock with, with Rachel. I wake up 2 a.m. Cannot go back to sleep. I am wide awake at 2 a.m. So I go, go to my computer. I do some reading, answer some emails, uh, do, prepare for some work on the show. ba 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 Try to do some more reading, okay, catch up on some correspondence. Blah, 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 blah. It's now 4.30 in the morning, quarter to five. No, 4.30, 4.15, 30 in the morning. And I said, all right, let me um, turn on cable television and see what's on. While i you know, responding to text messages and emails, let me see what's on. So I turn on, and now I, we had been watching Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. So right that was the first channel that was on when I turned on the television. It was HBO. And a movie's about to start. And I said, oh, okay, what's this? Oh, what, it just happens to be starting right as I'm watching television. Let me watch a few minutes of it. And it was a film called That Awkward Moment. And um, the beginning was kind of interesting. And then I looked it up. I said, let me see what kind of reviews this has gotten. Eh, mediocre reviews. Basically, I think a, a 6 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. But whatever. I can't sleep anyway. I haven't seen a movie in forever. Let me watch this. So I end up watching the first hour of it. And it's okay. It's okay. It's a, they call this a bromantic comedy. Bromantic comedy. Meaning it deals with the relationship that a bunch of guys have with one another. And then, uh, but I got into the story. Right. And I want to see how it ended, even though it's completely predictable. There are some funny parts to it. And the acting is actually great. Um, Michael B. Jordan is in it, who's a terrific actor. Miles Teller is in it. And Zac Efron, who I don't know that I've ever seen in anything. He's the star of this. And um, he he was the main guy. And uh, so because I'd gotten into the story a little bit later in the weekend, I said, all right, let me go back and see how this thing ends. So I did watch the whole thing, and um, it's fine. If you're looking for a lighthearted guys movie, you can check it out. I like that it's told in flashback. For whatever reason, I like films that are told in the retrospect. You know, in in retrospect, um, it's fine. You could easily go the rest of your life and not see this film, and your life will be fine. Um, it's decent. There there are some moments that make you chuckle, especially if you've ever been. 
a single guy that was dating. And I related to a lot of the scenes. You know, I got married later in life. So I was a bachelor for a long time. So I could relate to a lot of the things that these guys were going through. And um, I – but look, this is the kind of film within 10 minutes you know exactly what's happening. It's only okay. A lot of the scenarios in the film are – Absurdly real, uh, unrealistic. A lot of the uh, actions of the characters, they're things that these characters would never do. But uh, but it's okay. If you're looking for, it's it's older now. It's like eight, eight years old. But if it happens to be on as you uh, are up at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, eh, there are worse things to watch. That's my, that's, that's, that's my view. Um, one... Film critic in Variety wrote, The pick falls well short of its efforts to combine the raucous vulgarity of the Hangover movies with Cameron Crowish depth of feeling. And I thought that was a good, a, a good review. It really does kind of try to be both of those things, and it falls short in both. But it's okay. It's not the worst thing. I'll, I'll, I want to reemphasize that. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Let's check in with Bill in New Jersey. Oh, he's still got his radio on. Thank you, Bill. All right. Appreciate you listening even while you're asleep. Hopefully that means I'm uh, invading his... uh, invading his dreams. All right. Coming up in uh, just a moment, what is the greatest comeback in history? Excluding Jesus Christ, excluding Lazarus. Beyond those two examples, real life comebacks. What's the best example that you've ever seen of that? 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There are certain things that Americans really like, right? Uh, there's the Americans, in, even though they may protest, they really love dynasties. We really love dynasties. We do. Um, we really love a comeback story. Is there anything more American than a comeback story? For whatever reason, look, I'm as guilty as anybody. For whatever reason, when somebody comes back from being on the outs or having facing adversity or facing a tough time and comes back from anything and succeeds, we root for them. We do. Or we're happy that they've been able to come back. And history is filled with interesting comeback stories. And I was very interested 
You know, I've been following this new film, The Whale. It debuted at a film festival in uh, Venice on September 4th. Rave reviews. It's not going to be released in the United States in theaters here until December. But the headline, um, the headline story about The Whale is all about this is Brendan Fraser's comeback. You remember Brendan Fraser? Brendan Fraser was an action hero, an action star, a Hollywood hunk. He was doing uh, Georgia the Jungle. He was doing kids' movies. He did the Albert Brooks film, uh, The Rookie, I think it was, where he plays a baseball player. He was doing uh, action films like The Mummy and all sorts of things. He was big. You remember how big Brendan Fraser was? Well, in this film, The Whale, this is a drama, and he plays a 600-pound man confined to a wheelchair. And so far, everybody has set, has seen this film, said this is his comeback vehicle. You know, Tarantino was big for giving a lot of stars their comeback. Uh, John Travolta, uh, Pam Greer, um, Robert Forster, a number of others. Uh, Michael Keaton had a great comeback with uh, Birdman. <clears throat> and it got me thinking. And this is a story we've covered before, and I think it is anyway. It's a story that I love. What is the greatest comeback story in America? Could be any field. Politics, sports, entertainment, movies, television, music, whatever the case may be. Somebody who fell out of favor with the public sensibilities and managed to make a comeback. What's the greatest comeback in history? 800-848-9222. American history, preferably. Um, Obviously, look, Jesus coming back from the dead, that's quite a comeback story. Lazarus, same thing, that's a comeback story. What else? You know, Bill Clinton referred to himself as the comeback kid after his finish in the New Hampshire primary. I don't know that that was that much of a comeback story, to be honest. He spun it that way because I think Bill Clinton was a savvy enough politician to understand that America wanted a comeback story to come to fruition. Mickey Rourke, not Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rourke, his comeback story with The Wrestler, that's a real comeback story. Um, You know, in terms of politics, who had a phenomenal comeback story? Richard Nixon. Nixon... Losing the 1960 presidential election in a nail-biter. Two years later, running for governor of California, losing the gubernatorial election, and then giving that very bitter press conference that night uh, saying, you won't have Dick Nixon to to kick around anymore. And there was even specials on television uh, saying this is the political obituary of Richard Nixon. Whole specials. And you know what a great book on that is? It's Pat Buchanan's book, The Greatest Comeback. And it's all about the 1968 presidential campaign and how Nixon was able to mount a comeback. So uh, I'd be curious what your your take in terms of the greatest comeback stories are. In sports, the one that immediately comes to mind is Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, stripped of his title— publicly disgraced, needing to go to court, um, 
all sorts of all sorts of stuff going on with him, comes back and wins the championship. That's a comeback story. In pro wrestling, there's a number of great comeback stories, but obviously I'm biased towards my favorite wrestler, Ric Flair. Ric Flair almost died in a plane crash, breaks his back in multiple places, needs to get metal plates in his back, which you could then see for the rest of his wrestling career, these bumps in his back. Those were plates in the back from the plane crash. In in an accident that could have killed him, he goes on after that. It totally changes his style of wrestling. He goes on after that to lead one of the most impressive careers in um, in history as a pro wrestler. But the thing with Brendan Frazier, um, he's really had a rough time. He's had a number of surgeries because of injuries that he suffered from these films that he did, The Mummy and others. And then um, it was a very big scandal. In 2018, he came out and said that he was sexually assaulted in 2003 by Philip Burke, who was then the head of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. That's the entity that runs the Golden Globes. Uh, Philip Burke, for his part, called Frazier's version of the story a total fabrication. And Brendan Frazier told GQ that it led him to withdraw from the spotlight. He suffered from depression. He said he was blaming himself, and he was miserable. And uh, he stopped getting a lot of the starring roles that he was known for. Every film that he's done in the last 10 years, something you've never heard of. Hairbrained. Do you ever hear of that? Furry Vengeance. Have you heard of that? He did get a, a few episodes on TV, but very different. So now this new film, The Whale, is a Darren Aronofsky film. He did Black Swan. He did uh, The Wrestler with, of course, Mickey Rourke, not Mickey Rooney. That was his comeback vehicle. And I think most people are very happy for him. The Rock who starred with Brendan Fraser in The Mummy Returns, tweeted something. Uh, he tweeted, this makes me so happy to see this beautiful ovation for Brendan. You, This ovation that he got in Venice, when the movie premiered at that film festival, the audience was so moved, they gave Brendan Fraser a six-minute-long standing ovation, brought him to tears. It was reported that he tried to leave the theater, but the applause was so relentless that it seemed to physically freeze him in place. So I'm looking forward to seeing the picture, but um, I think everybody's really happy that Brendan Fraser, who most people seem to think is a pretty nice guy, that he is uh, on the verge of a major Rourke-esque, not Rooney-esque, but Rourke-esque Hollywood comeback. Some people that a lot of people had written off as uh, as washed up, at least in the radio business and maybe even the death metal business, was uh, Alex Barnard, and uh, he's made quite a comeback. He's uh, on uh, working a very popular radio show. He's got a very the most popular death metal song about uh, live streaming a mass shooting, and uh, he's doing very well. He's here, Alex Barnard. Yeah, I um I was going to weigh in on the comeback business and i think the best musical comeback 
ever was Queen's performance at Live Aid 1985. So help us out here. Now, I saw the film Queen, but I've read that there was some inaccurate things with that. And according to Nicholas Meyer, what happens in film is not necessarily always historically accurate. What was Queen's status prior to that 1985 Live Aid concert? Why were they sort of... In the doldrums. Basically, I mean, they'd come out with a couple of real dud albums like Hot Space, um, which, despite having the collaboration with David Bowie, um, which, uh, under pressure, um, it was just a, it was a pretty terrible album. It was a, like a disco album, essentially. Um, Freddie Mercury was having some issues with drugs and you know living kind of a lavish lifestyle he was working on a solo album that was a bit of a dud at the time which was taking some time away from the band and basically no one had heard anything good from them so they were being sort of Mm. in a few years so people were sort of starting to pan them and then they come out with this 20 minute set at Live Aid 1985 and blow everyone out of the Ah, water well that's a good one uh 800-848-9222 you know what's another good one, and that reminds me, listening to Alex Barnard's commenting on those those dud Queen albums, um, Marlon Brando, 1972, to come out with two films that same year, The Godfather and Last Tango in Paris, after doing 10 bombs in a row. Brando had done 10 films, 10 flops in a row, so much so that... One, even though he was an Academy Award winner, he was not the highest paid actor in The Godfather. They made him do a screen test. I mean, and that was not something you generally did back then. I don't think it is now either. To give someone a screen test who's already won an Oscar. And they made Brando put up a million dollar bond that if there were any delays in production due to his behavior, that that they would draw down from that bond. Sure enough, he kills it with both The Godfather and Last Tango in Paris. So I think that's a good comeback story as well. Evelyn writes Frank Sinatra. I think that's a great example. I think that is a great, great example. Sinatra became a big star at a young age. He His career was in the doldrums and then came back a monstrous star once again. I think the same could be said of Tony Bennett. I'll give you two. Two. An actor and a musician. I'll take it. John Travolta. Right, okay. Come back with Pulp Fiction. Right, yeah, he got Tarantino'd. Yeah. And Meatloaf. Oh, so I didn't realize Meatloaf was a comeback story. So oh, ed- yeah. Ed- educate us about that. Bad Out of Hell, Paradise by the Dashboard Light, was a huge record in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Heard nothing from him from the 80s. Then all of a sudden, 1993, it's Bad Out of Hell 2. And that was, I would do anything for love, but I wouldn't, won't do that. Huge hit. So um, why did Meatloaf kind of fall out of favor for those years? He just didn't produce anything or he didn't make anything people liked? Yeah, I I don't know. It's probably a combination of both. I just remember that he never heard from the guy. Mm -hmm. You know anything about him? I mean, the 80s came along. And and, and Meatloaf was already sort of – it was more uh, like a musical. Even the record was more of a musical – he had Steinman who wrote, co-wrote with him, so then they co-wrote another record. And he was, remember, well, he was in Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was in the 70s. Right. So he was big in the 70s. They didn't hear anything from him in the 80s. And all of a sudden in the 90s, he's back on top. Yeah. Well, that's a good one. Uh, I'd be curious what you can come up with. Doesn't matter the field. Doesn't have to be entertainment. Could be sports, 
business, politics, whatever. You know, um, Donald Trump, there's a lot of people that said for years that he was, including him, that he was a great comeback story. I'm not sure if that's as pronounced of an example as some of the other people we're talking about, but um, Trump, his first book was The Art of the Deal. Then he went through some tough times. And then his next book was The Art of the Comeback. And so he viewed himself as a great comeback story. Curious what you think, um, you know, if you can think of a good one. 800-848-9222. Anton is in New Jersey. Hello, Anton. Winston Churchill, who was half American, he had the great Dardanelles strategy in World War One, but the people didn't, uh, his uh, generals didn't execute it properly, and he was out of favor in the 30s, totally. He was in, in the wilderness here back in 1940 and helped Britain. And he was half American, for those who don't know. Yeah, and you know, and that's a great example, actually, Anton. And then they got rid of him as prime minister after the war. And then six years later, he comes back. And that was a real comeback story. They brought him back as prime minister in 1951 after he had fallen out of favor. That is a good one. 800-848-9222, the greatest comeback story that you can think of. What is it? One, two, three, four, five, six open lines if you want to jump on board. And we can, we can if we have to, dismiss Bill in New Jersey, who's still snoring, at least when last heard from. Hello, Bill. Yeah, still snoring. 800-848-9222. Uh, what's the greatest comeback story you can think of? Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Robert Downey Jr., before he became Iron Man, um, as a matter of fact, I think The Fugitive might actually be one of his comeback movies. I'm not sure, but he had a problem with drugs. He got locked up. He was out of the spotlight for a while because of that. And this is before the Iron Man thing and everything. He fell from grace. He had a, That was his comeback, pretty much Iron Man and the movies that you know of him after he got locked up. Yeah, that is a great one. Uh, that is a that is the prototypical Hollywood comeback story. And if Brendan Fraser can pull this off, it'll be on par with a Downey situation or a Travolta situation. That is a good one. 800-848-9222. Chris on Staten Island. Hello, Chris. Yes, I got two quick ones. Uh, ben Hogan got into a car accident in 1946, broke his pelvis, collarbone, ankle, all the things you don't want to break for a golf swing. And in 1950, came back to win five or six tournaments, including three majors. Probably would have won the fourth, the uh, the PGA, if not for scheduling issues. And then the other thing is uh, Apple Computer. Ah, and and you know, I, I think Apple. First of all, I appreciate the Ben Hogan education because I know so little about golf, and it sounds like it sort of paralleled what happened with Tiger Woods. Um, you know, some years later, but. The Apple one is a great one, and I think not only is the story of Apple a comeback story, but the story of Steve Jobs is a comeback story. He was essentially thrown out of Apple, thrown out of his own company, and then only to come back as sort of a a conquering hero years later. That is a great one. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Chris. 800-848-9222. Having such good luck with the Chris's. Let's say hello to Chris in Yonkers. Hello, Chris. 
Hey, Frank, I love your show. You're great, man. Great. You're Thank on you. all Star Trek. Okay, I'll tell you, I'm overjoyed, and a lot of conservatives are overjoyed right now, despite the pandemonium, because the Right to Life movement has made a comeback with overturning Roe versus Wade after 49 years. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hear what you mean, Chris. I'm really thinking of it as an individual, right? Like a, a personality, a person who was cast aside, who was who was disgraced, and then is able to make a comeback. You know, like it, when, remember when Anthony Weiner came back to run for mayor after resigning from Congress? Had he won, that would have been a great comeback story. Uh, Mark Sanford who was a disgraced governor. And then he was able to come back and get elected to Congress. That's a great comeback story. Uh, If Trump is able to win in 2024, that's a great comeback story. But we'll see what the results are. Uh, Jerry on Long Island. Hello, Jerry. How about Harry Truman? Even the newspapers had him losing the election in the morning. Yeah, but he never really he never lost though, right? So I mean, no, but 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 they put him in there. They put him in to be like a you know. Uh, I mean, he wasn't met. He he had a failed haberdashery shop. He mm. failed at everything he did, and he became vice president, I guess, by accident. And uh, you know, FDR dies, and he becomes president. Yeah, okay, I, I'll go along with Harry Truman. I don't think the Truman comeback story is as dramatic. As the Nixon comeback story. Nixon was a national laughingstock. Uh, Nixon was, they had written his political obituary. He was done. And then he came back to get elected president. Twice. Including what uh, had been the largest electoral landslide in over 100 years. So uh, that's a real comeback story. Hey, Frank, I got one. Oh, boy. WABC's own Sid Rosenberg. That's actually, that is a good one. Got kicked off think, the fan, right? You know, it's funny. I think the last time we did this topic, a listener brought up Sid Rosenberg. Really? They did, right? That is a good one. That is a good comeback story. That's good. Yeah, fired a bunch of times, disgraced a bunch of times, drugs and this and that and this addiction and that addiction, and is able to come back, and he is uh, hosting one of the most popular morning shows in the whole country and is now a best-selling author. That is a good one. Ray in Mount Vernon. Hello, Ray. Hello, Mike. Uh, one of the best uh, comeback stories is George Foreman, one of the most disliked athletes in the world universally, a thuggish kind of reputation, and then he became one of the most liked and trusted characters in, in television history, basically getting his own sitcom, endorsing high-quality products. I thought that was a real contrast from most disliked to most liked. You know, I didn't realize that George Foreman had that kind of reputation early on, but you're, you're saying he was viewed he was negatively. Sort of a, right. He was sort of as a thug growing up in, uh, in Texas. When he won the Olympic gold, he was waving the American flag at a time when there were real protests mm. against uh, certain politics. In the ring, he was pretty much denounced as a thug. When he bounced around George Foreman and Ken Norton, he was very, very disliked. Then to go in to endorse uh, the George Foreman Grills and get his own sitcom, incredible, incredible turnaround. Yeah, okay, that's good. I like it. 800-848-9222. Ernie in Port Chester, hello. Hey, Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit. So, uh, obviously, I I saw the film, and I know that Seabiscuit was a champion horse, but refresh our recollection. What what went on with Seabiscuit? 
he went down with his both him and the jockey were seriously injured, and they had to go through rehab and mm. come back. You know, horses' legs are very very delicate, and they they should have put him down, but they didn't. Okay, well, no, that's that's definitely a good one. That's definitely a good one. And you know what that reminds me of? And I hadn't thought about it until he just mentioned it. And I'd love to get some non-entertainment comebacks as well. But you know what that reminds me of? Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan, he was in that horrible car accident. They weren't sure if he was ever going to be the same again. Sure enough, not only was he able to recover, but he's killing it. He's doing some of the best work he's ever done. That's a comeback story. 800-848-9222. Joe in Scarsdale. Hello, Joe. Good morning, Frank. I don't know if anybody mentioned Don Imus. Yeah, so um, meaning from the nappy-headed incident to his time as the host well, of the morning show on, on WABC? And the cocaine recovery, the alcohol recovery. He yeah. was fired numerous times. That's a good one. I'm that, so, that I don't know if anybody one. mentioned them already. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. That's a good one, Joe. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Peter in Manhattan, what do you have for us? Yeah, I got two for you. Uh, one is Curtis Sliwa. Curtis Sliwa was ostracized after his scandals. And then when he went to WNYC, they, they, they closed the station down. And now he's on top of the world again. Kabish? Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. I don't think that's as pronounced a comeback. Because even when Curtis was exposed for his scandals, he was still working. It was not as if he was disgraced to the point of losing his job. Um, Sid Rosenberg was, right? It's a little bit different with Curtis. Jim on Long Island, what do you have for us, Jim? How about um, Aerosmith? They were all but history until Run DMC brought him back from the dead. Is that true? I didn't realize that. Yes. Yep. See, Aerosmith, I always kind of put it in the category almost like the Rolling Stones. I thought they were always popular, and you're saying, no, that's not the case. Yeah, they were, I remember I was, a, I was a fan favorite back, you know, in the day, and then they disappeared, and then Run DMC came out with a remake, you know, a remake of their popular song and brought them back to life. All right. No, that's certainly a good one. Thank you, Jim. Let's check in with Bill in New Jersey. Still snoring. All right. Hey, uh, you know what we're going to do in just a moment? We're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, you are going to get to try to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you could do that, then you are going to... Uh, be the proud recipient of $1,000. No tricks, nothing funny. That's as simple as it can be. 800-848-9222. Seventh caller, we'll get to, we'll get to answer you, ask you some questions. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I would do anything 
this is Meatloaf, uh, who Matt Blaze says is a strong candidate for greatest comeback ever. You can see it's a good song. I can understand it. All right. Uh, well, hopefully you can begin your comeback $1,000 richer if you are the lucky enough to play. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say hello to Tim in Chester, not to be confused with Port Chester. Hello, Tim. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Doing great, Tim. Thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for participating. You've heard this contest before, I imagine. Yes, I did. Okay, great. Uh, so it, the rules are pretty simple, and uh, if you've heard, you know how it goes. If you're ready, we'll get started. Yeah, I'm ready when you are. Name an alcoholic beverage. Budweiser. What month is, is Columbus Day? October. What sport do the New York Jets play? Football. Whose face is on the quarter? Um, George Washington. What is one-third of 60? 33.3. Ah, no, oh. I'm sorry. Ah, God. It's, uh, it is 20. 20. Uh, Tim, yeah, I'm going to put you on hold and give uh, g- give uh, Kenneth your information. We'll send you a consolation prize. Yeah, 33.3 would be one-third of 100. But no, one-third of 60 is 20. Doing well there. Doing well. I, I got a little nervous on the uh, quarter question, but he thought about it. You see, that's what you got to do. Think about it a second, and then go with your go with your gut and your brain. All right, 800-848-9222. What is going on in Nevada? Nevada is the silver state. Um, and by the way. Nevada is the most um, polluted state in the country. Yeah. Well, first, the news broke uh, more than a week ago that the Clark County Public Administrator, Robert Tellis, was charged with murder in the violent slaying of longtime Southern Nevada journalist Jeff German. And um, so, I mean, this is pretty expensive, a four, a pretty pretty unusual. A 45-year-old guy, an elected official there, the public administrator, I think it's an elected post, I don't think it's appointed like it is in New York, um, charged with first-degree murder for killing a journalist, no less. And then the news breaks on, I think, Friday. It might have been Thursday. But the news breaks of another high-profile murder in Nevada. Um, The former Nevada deputy attorney general arrested in a 1972 Hawaii homicide. And I don't know if you saw this fellow's Mugshot. The fell he's seventy-seven years old now, but his name's Tudor Chirilla Jr. 
I don't know anything about the facts of the case. The guy could be as innocent as the wind-driven snow. But if you look at this guy's mugshot, Tudor Sherilla Jr., you could convict this guy of anything, right? All you have to do, and you hate to think this way, but it's unfortunately true, this guy is the most guilty-looking person I've ever seen of anything. You could charge this guy with anything, kidnapping the Lindbergh baby, killing Judge Crater, anything. And you put this guy in court and you say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I mean, please, can't we save ourselves some time? Take a look. This fella was the former former deputy Nevada attorney general. He ran for the state Supreme Court. And then later, he was affiliated with the infamous Mustang uh, Ranch brothel. He's been arrested in Reno as a suspect in this 1972 homicide. So a friend of mine, my friend Mario, sent me a text message on Friday saying, what is going on in Nevada? I saw an article in the Post that a former Nevada official was arrested for a 50-year-old homicide. This is the second arrest of a Nevada official in as many weeks. They don't seem to be doing a very good job of screening their candidates unless homicide is not a disqualifier from public office in the Silver State. Very clever, very clever, but uh, it's very interesting that we would see these two stories back-to-back in the state of Nevada. I thought it was was quite peculiar. Quite peculiar. All right, 800-848-9222. John is on Interstate 78. Hello, John. Good morning, Mr. Morano. First time caller. I think that uh, if Phil ever wakes up from snoring, that would be the greatest on-air comeback. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one, John. Hey, thanks for calling. I hope you'll, hopefully you'll make it a habit. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Let's check in with Bill, see if he has woken up yet. Bill! Bill? I don't hear the snoring anymore. Maybe you... Yeah, no, I hear myself back. That's annoying. But, um... And so, I don't know why he left his radio on, too. But, yeah, I don't hear the snoring anymore, so that's good. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. If you want to join our Facebook group, you can. Um, you know who posted in my in the Facebook group the other day? My wife, Rachel. Give you a little context. So we had been, we've consolidated to one car. I am a little bit of a hoarder. Like I'm not to the point of needing to go on one of those shows, hoarders. I don't think I could be hospitalized for my hoarding, but I don't like to throw things out and, and whatever people send me a lot of stuff. And so I had all this stuff in my car. My wife characterized my car as the kind of car that a homeless person would live. So, um, I, my uncle, when he was preparing my car, cause he's in the auto body business. He consolidated all the stuff. He threw it in bags in the trunk. And I took it all out of there. There's bags worth of stuff. And so for over a week, my wife has been saying, all right, we got to go through the stuff that's in your office and in the garage. 
we go through this, it was so incredibly stressful. And I, my wife wants to throw away everything, and I wanted to throw away nothing. And I, I kept, as we were going away, going through these things, I kept wanting to utilize these things. Like uh, I, um, one listener, Mike in New Rochelle, sent us a bunch of CDs that I have to listen to. I said, oh, we got to listen to these tonight. What, what, what are, where are we going to listen to them, she says. Do you, you have a CD player? I said, yeah, we have one in this room. All right, okay, fine, we'll listen to this. Then another listener had sent me the DVD to Gabriel over the White House. I said, oh, we got to watch this tonight. I said, what? she said to me, when are we going to watch this? After, after, your, um, after the five hours of, uh, of CDs that we listened to from, from Mike and New Rochelle, we're going to watch Gabriel over the White House. And then she's going through all these things. Oh, there's this. You've never used this once. Okay. And this was very stressful. I mean, she was very perturbed. And, you know, we had to do kind of a major argument over this. And this is a constant source of stress for us that we have too much stuff. Really, I have too much stuff and we don't have enough space. And she brought this up time and again, right, with me. And this is a constant thing. It was just sort of magnified because we had taken all the stuff out of the car and it was now all all over the place and she can't get rid of it fast enough. See, what my wife does is she covertly throws away things. She'll throw away mugs. She'll throw away, you know, other things. And I do the garbage. So I fish this stuff out of the garbage and then I hide it in different places. You know, she'll throw away an old cigar box. I'll hide that. She'll throw away an old mug, an old glass. I'll hide them so she can't throw them away again. Um, so anyway, on Friday evening, around 9.42, she makes the following post on Facebook. She said, I've never posted on this page outside of a comment, so you know this is important. If you're a fan of Frank, please give him myself, give, give him and myself the biggest gift you could ever imagine. No gifts, no books, no bobbleheads, no trinkets, no tote bags, no branded water bottles. An end to Frank's hoarding ways will be the best gift I've ever received. And as they say, happy wife, happy life. If you're a hater, go ahead and send. So she did make me promise on Friday. This was the only way this argument kind of ended. Please make an announcement to ask folks not to send you anything anymore. So I said I would do it. So I am doing it. There you go. And she's pretty serious about that. Have so you ever watched an episode no, of Hoarders? Never watched it. This is a typical episode of Hoarders. Really? Exactly what you described. I don't want to throw this out. We have to do this. I have to listen to these CDs. I have to watch these DVDs. We can't throw that out. I have to. I'm fishing it out of the garbage. I'm hiding it over here. It is a typical episode well, and, of Hoarders. And you know, so she she starts this pile in our in a corner of my office, at, of stuff that we're going to donate. And look, I, I can't stress enough. My office is again. There's three bookshelves filled right with with books. And there's still stacks and stacks and stacks of books that aren't on the shelves because there's no room. She said, look, I, you're not leaving this room until you can find at least 10 books that you're going to donate. I have to tell you, 
this selection of picking 10 books to part with was some of the most difficult decisions that I've ever had to make. And somehow I was able to come up with 10 books, but this was, I still have anxiety thinking about some of these books that I have to give away now. It was, it was brutal. Typical hoarder. Yeah. Uh, You're you're describing how stressful it is just to pick out 10 books. It was tough. It was tough. Now, I, I hoard to a certain extent, but when I clean up, I go, yeah, I keep this, but I haven't used it. I'll never use it. I'm throwing it away. And that's that. I've watched, I actually watched an episode of Hoarders that they hoarded books to where the house was unstructural safe. It was not safe anymore because of the weight of these books yeah. was crippling this house. And they had, a, they had to flee the home. They had an engineer come in and go, you can't live here because this house is going to collapse because of the weight of all these books. Frank, do you have like like a an extra whole room in your house that's no. like an elaborate public library? Well, I mean, my office is basically that, but we we keep um but I have books everywhere. <laughs> I, you know, I have books and radios everywhere. And then I had this new radio that my wife uh made me give away, right? And this is like an expensive radio. And I, I said I'm not giving this away. This radio it's it's $100 this radio. She says, you have not opened it. You have 15 other radios in this house. There is no way. I said, but you don't understand. This is a solar-powered radio. She says, oh, look over there. There's another solar-powered radio. And how often do you really have a need for a solar-powered radio? So um, what we ended up doing is we organized organized the softball game on Saturday for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. And it was a lot of fun. Um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll talk about it. Maybe tomorrow. I didn't get to do it today. I don't want to rush through the softball game. And we gave away a lot of the stuff that we found in my office as prizes. To the, and one of the things that we gave to the MVP, Joe Rizzuto, was a uh, was this radio, this solar-powered radio, which is really cool. It's from C-Crane Company. It's really neat. All right. Neil is in Maryland. Hello, Neil. Hey, how you doing? It's the first time I'm listening to you, and I have to tell you, you have a problem. (laughs) I I have a cleaning business for 17 years, and I've seen just about all of it. And most of the excuses you're making are the same excuses that people make who seriously need to get a storage unit and put their stuff there so they're Marriage does not collapse. <laughs> well, I think I may have to get the storage unit because yeah. uh, it's really, it's really, it's really something. I'll tell you what, though, Neil, uh, you are our very first caller from WCBM in Baltimore, Talk Radio six eighty. And as a token of our appreciation, we are going to send you something which hopefully you will use and not store and not store. Okay. Oh, that's- all right, fantastic. Thanks, All right, Frank. hey, give me some advice on being on the air in Baltimore, Neil. What, what do you What do you Baltimoreans like out there? You know, what do we like out here? I mean, crab cakes, right? It's crab cakes. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're a typical Marylander, I'm not. Um, but I, I I think just what you're doing is great. You know, about things you you do. Um, really goes a long way. I mean, I enjoy it. I work at night, so I picked you up, and I was glad I gave a call. 
Well, Neil, uh, call often, okay? You're, you're going to be our official ambassador to the Maryland community. I would love to. Thanks, Frank. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Neil. Kenneth, grab, grab Neil's information. We'll send him something, okay? And then uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully he doesn't end up storing it and, and getting divorced because of storage. So that's that. Uh, all right. So there you go. We, we are indeed on the air in, in Maryland. Now we know people are hearing us. People are calling. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Hey, a lot of people um, responding to this uh, comeback situation. Let's real quick uh, check in with Bill in New Jersey. Bill? Bill? I'm starting to get worried about Bill. Do we have Bill's address? Can we send somebody for a wellness check on uh, on Hello. Bill? His radio still on, but Wake I don't up. hear him breathing anymore. Wake up! I'm very nervous. Wake up! Bill? Wake up! Bill? I don't hear him snoring. All right, we're gonna check on uh, we're gonna check on uh, on Bill. Thank you, Bill. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Hey, well, look at these married landers um, just lining up to comment on various things. Howie is in Bel Air. They call Howie actually the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Maryland. Hello, Howie. Hi. Hey, it's also WCVM. Yeah. I wanted to uh, give a, a, a comeback story. George Blanda. George Blanda? Yeah, he, he played 10 years with the Chicago Bears, a pretty respectable career, retired, sat out in 1959, actually worked with my Uncle Bob at a place called Kempe's. And one afternoon, he had gone to lunch, came back, and George, he got a phone call, something called the Houston Oilers. And George said, I don't know anything about the oil business. What do you want me for? George, I don't think it's a, a oil company. I think it's a football team in that new league. And he was determined to tell him, I'm not coming back. And he listened to the offer they were making and said, when you want me? We ended up being most valuable player in 61. And I think it was like 12, 13 years later, he was MVP again. There was like five, six games where he, he came in as a kicker and a quarterback both and bailed the Oakland Raiders out of uh, that's cool. Uh, I, I got to uh, tell you, Howie, I didn't know any of this. That's great. That's great to hear. That's a perfect comeback story. Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. Hey, what are you usually listening to at this time, Howie? Um, I'm actually sitting in the parking lot ready to go to work. Uh, I usually have CBM on, though. All right, Uh, great. Hey, well, hopefully we're not too much of a disappointment from what you're normally used to hearing. Absolutely not. All right, Howie, we're counting on you to listen every day now, even when the show's only so-so. Definitely will. Thank you, Howie. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Sherry is in Canarsie. Hello, Sherry. Good morning, Frank. Good to hear from you again. Thank you. Likewise. Uh, I I have two stories for you. Barry and Mary. Barry and Mary? Barry and Mary. Remember this guy who was found with the prostitute in the Washington, D.C. area? No, Mary and Barry. Oh. (laughs) I got this one. Uh, That's okay. I like that. And the second one is Gloria Estefan. Uh, what, What did Gloria Estefan, what adversity did she face? Oh, what happened is she was in a car accident badly in New York. And there were New York four hospital special surgeries. They said she would never walk again. Is that right? I did not know that. Yes, yes. She was a very, very bad car accident. They said she would never walk again. Well, yeah. Remember how the, the Miami Sounds Mission used to be on stage with her dancing and everything? Mm. They promised no way, never, ever. And I... then New York, she even had a commercial. 
I think that certainly qualifies, uh, Sherry. Thank you. You you know, um, before his recent scandal, it was not quite the scale of a Nixon comeback, but Andrew Cuomo mounted quite a comeback. When Andrew Cuomo was laughed out of the governor's race in 2002, and then his marriage fell apart right after that, and it was very publicly and very embarrassingly, for him to come back and get elected attorney general, and then four years later get elected governor, that was quite a comeback story. Now, again, it all came crashing down like a house of cards, or as we refer to it, a house of Cuomo's. So, you know, I'm not sure if you could still consider that a comeback story, but he did make the initial comeback. You know another one, and now that I'm thinking about this? Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, again, national laughing stock, laughed out of the governor's race, Mayor of Cleveland, uh, caught patronizing a prostitute, pays the prostitute with a check and gets lambasted not only for patronizing a prostitute, but for being foolish enough to pay with a check, comes back to do to do the biggest talk show in, in, in television. One of the biggest talk shows in history. So that's a that's certainly one. 800-848-9222, and then we'll move on. Hey, you know, we'll do 15 seconds of fame next. For all you Baltimoreans, the way this works is you will have 15 seconds of fame to say whatever you like. 800-848-9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. Um, obviously, you can't use profanity. We'd prefer you not to bash any of the hosts. And just turn your radio off. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. By the way, um, I, um, you know, am just uh, absurd today, right? So if we're cataloging my errors, I gave the wrong artist for a song. I called um, Mickey Rourke Mickey Rooney. I, uh, the most egregious error is I killed off Barry Levinson. And I think I just said that Jerry Springer was the mayor of Cleveland when in actuality he was the mayor of Cincinnati. So, uh, and the what? Yeah, I said that. I said that. Um, oh, my error. Uh, yeah, well, we're used to your errors. We're, we're not accustomed <laughs> to, usually I have a, a an accuracy rate of, Close to 90%. Today, my accuracy accuracy rate is closer to 40%. Boy, geez. This is, I, the, the people of Baltimore, you should know, I'm usually much more accurate than them. Don't, uh, don't let this be a, don't let this be a, uh, 
harbinger of things to come. All right, 800-848-9222. What will I get wrong next? Who knows? Who knows? But hopefully this is your opportunity to get something right, at least for 15 seconds. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Fred in the office. We still love you anyway. I tell you, it's getting bad here in Yonkers. The other day I was in the park. There was two crows sitting on a bench. I think it was an attempted murder. Uh, your phone broke up a little bit there, so I don't know. I think there was a funnier punchline that we missed. Jason on Staten Island. Hello. Yes. Hello? Yes. Can you hear me? Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. How about uh, for comebacks? How about Elvis? Biggest star it was from... You know, 56 on, kind of faded, and then uh, doing all those movies. That's then- a good one. Jimmy in the Bronx. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Cheech in Howard Beach. Shame on those people in Martha's Vineyard. You know, I hope Governor Abbott is listening and Governor DeSantis. Send them out to Shelter Island, uh, Sag Harbor, and um, uh, the Hamptons, because those people don't have that not-in-my-backyard attitude out there. Victor in Manhattan. Uh, as you know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, by the way, who was a pom-pom girl for the Brooklyn Tech bowling team, said inflation was transitory. But then again, so was the Black Plague and the Third Reich. <laughs> Tyrone in the Bronx. Yeah, Frank, I have to denounce you. That uh, Canadian caller for the $1,000 minute, you gave him that question on the quarter. Well, nobody knows who's on the Canadian coins. How could you expect him to know that? So I- Sid in Brooklyn. Yeah, the Mets suck. They'll never be as good as the Yankees ever, ever, ever. No one cares how much games they win. They suck. Ralph in New Jersey. Well, send him to the White House and let Biden grant him amnesty. Welcome uh, to America, President Parkers, and I hope you will be in the Libya. Ralph, I, I couldn't have said it any better. Hey, you want to stay in touch, uh, find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fan. You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Good day.